You, you want to see something really scary? You bet. Really? Yeah. Okay, this is this is really, really scary now. I trust you. Okay, pull the car over. Pull the car over? Ooh. You want to see it? Well, show me while I'm driving. No, I can't. I can't tell you about it. It's only take a couple of seconds. All right, two seconds, okay? Okay. What is it? Just pull it over. Okay. I'll show you. All right. Scare me. Are you ready? Okay, go ahead. What are you doing? We're gonna go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And hey guys, it's Terry here. And uh, somewhere, I'm going to make this joke, I've made it before, somewhere out in the wing, it's a figure, it's something. What is it? It's it's my co-host Steve from Invasion of the Podcast. Hello everybody, I'm happy to be here for this strange three-way. Wait, Wait. I mean Strange Highway. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. <laughs> uh, I just uh, hope everybody uh, enjoyed our season five slash series wrap up of the original series. Uh, last episode with uh, guest uh, Richard, who I've also referred to as a wing walker. So I guess I'll just all all the men in my life want to walk on wings. I don't know what that means. Uh, so yeah. and thank you if you were able to listen to the entire episode. Uh, gold star for you if you were able to make it all the way through the three hours. <laughs> I like that. I like that Terry thinks that three hour episodes are too long. Steve, do you, what do you think <laughs> about that? I mean, it's kind of the gold standard we set on Invasion. So, you know, uh, you, you you probably should be awarded some sort of medal if you make it through an Invasion episode. But uh, for you guys, I think that's a bonus episode, really. I mean, it's basically half a season's worth of content now. Uh, no, just, thanks, everybody. It's just, again, it was like we're wrapping up 36 episodes and kind of tying a bow in the series. So it went a little long. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh However, uh, now and we take a week off. Everybody had a good holiday. Uh, this is also kind of a bit of a victory lap. This has been a movie that we're going to be talking about tonight is Twilight Zone, the movie. Uh, it is something that has been hanging over our heads since the start of the podcast because people would ask uh, multiple times, like, you guys should cover the movie. It's like, well, we will. It's just that it felt weird to cover the film that came after the series. Which involves some of the episodes. Yeah, <laughs> during the series. And it would have been like, like it had been weird to be like, Hey, that turret 20,000 feet with John Lithgow. Hey, and we cover it in season five. Like, man, I remember when this was in color, like it would just be weird. Right. So here we are. 
And uh, I, I asked Steve to be on the show because he's been on previously, and I uh, he is a, a, uh, a writer and creator, and um, he does many comic book things, and he has anthology stuff that he has written, so um, I figured that would be great to have him on. And also, because you were on previously for the uh, It's a Good Life episode, so that's why we're having you back on again. So, yeah, um, with, with all that being said, Let's just let's just kind of get into so might as well do some day and date because it is the Twilight Zone. Uh, June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty three was the release date. A number one film. Steve, you want to guess what the number one film was in nineteen eighty three? I'm going to guess it's Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yes, it's what was number one when this came out. It, it didn't it didn't beat at the box office for some reason. I don't know why. It took a week off though. It was like it was Return <laughs> of the Jedi. Then Superman three came out. And then went right back to Return of the Jedi. <laughs> oh, man. Steve must have been running back and forth from the theater. Yeah. Like, uh, right when this released, Superman 3 is like, what's up, bro? And <laughs> he, he vanished immediately. Yeah. And with Richard well, Pryor. You know, so, yeah. I believe, uh, wasn't uh, The Empire Strikes Back finally knocked off the number one spot by, like, Friday the 13th in, like, 1980, if I remember correctly? Something along those lines, too. So, it's interesting, like, uh, how movies come along, along that you know, knock things off and then they go back to being number one again. <laughs> well, you, you know, a movie actually into Titanic's run of like six years at number one. I don't know why I remember this. The lost in space. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. One, one was about a tragedy. Another one was Titanic, you know? Uh, so, uh, number one song, uh, was, uh, every breath you take by the police. Uh, so I don't, I couldn't find anything for the date of the 24th. However, just to kind of give a timestamp of where we're at June 19th, uh, the game Dragon's Lair, the arcade game that was uh, rotoscoped, it was using laser discs. It's the one based upon the Don Bluth uh, characters of Dirk the Daring. And the game looked amazing at the time, and it still holds up. Uh, so that was released in arcades. And then uh, in July, the Famicom system, which would become known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, would be released in Japan. So that's kind of where we're at, at this point in the 80s. So um, just I like having that little snapshot. So uh, budget for the film was 10 million, box office 42 million. We'll get more into that a little bit later. Um, yeah, so uh, so I'll just say this. Uh, it's produced by Steven Spielberg and John Landis. Uh, we'll get more into the segments here in a moment. So, Terry, I, I'll let you. How about we kind of just go from segment to segment, and then we'll just run through the cast real quickly with each of them as we go. Okay, yeah. So then that way, yeah, because I mean, I want to c- talk about these in order, but it'd be kind of hard to be like, let's talk about thirty-seven cast members and then get into what they've done. Yeah, so. I'm not. I'm not. I can't give every cast member here. Oh no, neither can I. It'd be ridiculous. Yeah. All right, so our, our prologue or the kind of wraparound um, uh, is written and directed by John Landis, uh, and it stars uh, the driver as Albert Brooks. Uh, and Passenger as Dan Aykroyd. So you just heard the uh, the engagement there uh, between the two and the driver and all that. Pretty fun thing. I liked it. Um, it, it's st- it definitely sets the mood of the entire movie. Um, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It doesn't feel like the Twilight Zone. It feels something like Tales from like the Crypt or something. Uh, but... I, I just I can't not not be excited every time hearing the beginning of Midnight Special when this movie starts. It is such a wonderful use of music, and it's just also having two comedians like just kind of like just you know shoot the shit for a minute and kind of disarm you. I, I the sequence still really works for me. 
Um, yeah. And it's terrified me as a kid. Terrified me. And this is pretty much the beginning of the relationship between Dan Aykroyd and John Landis because they went on to do Trading Places and, um, uh, uh, what is it, Spies Like Us. Hmm. So they had a continuing working relationship. So, so Steve, actually, let me want to ask you a question here. Um, so you're, you're a smidge older than me um, by like a hair and a whisper. Um, like, when did you first see this film? I don't think I definitely didn't see it in the theater. I feel well, like you're watching Superman cable. three at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, uh, uh, I probably saw it on cable. Um, and I don't even think maybe even cable, maybe like a big Chuck and little John type show or, you know, a late night horror host that I may have been watching back in the day. Uh, but I, I don't know that I can pinpoint like there are movies that I definitely have like specific memories of first time watches, but I feel like this is one, that I may may have watched either on my own or maybe even at a friend's house, but I don't have like a, a, a specific memory I can go back to. But yeah, I'm going to say some pro- somewhere either in the mid '80s to early '90s, okay. somewhere along in there. I'm, I'm I saw this at a young age, and this has been one of those films that has like it has like a flash burn on my memory. You know, like uh, as much as I and I'm going to look forward to talking to this, talk about this with you guys. It's like I always have anxiety during this opening segment, even though I know it's coming. And like, it's just that whole like delay of want to see something scary and then that wait, right? And then watching it now as an adult and realize that Dan Aykroyd is just full of uh, Jaguar and large cat noises <laughs> as he attacks Albert Brooks. It's a little silly, They're but canned. It, yeah, but it, it really, <laughs> it, you know, it just scared the life out of me as a little kid when he turned and attacked Albert Brooks. Like, uh, and so, yeah, like that, it's still really effective. And just because even though now I can see this kind of little hokey, there's that still that, that like, you know, that, that kid, that scared kid part of me, that's just, I still get uneasy (laughs) while watching it, but I, I I do like this beginning sequence. And I guess I should also mention too here with, with Steven Spielberg producing this, uh, he he made his first um, uh, TV directing on an episode of Night Gallery, which was not necessarily produced. Well, it was produced by Rod Serling. He didn't have as much you know control. However, you know that's where Spielberg got his start, and then he ended up like directing uh, Duel, which was written by Richard Matheson, his first film. So, I think Spielberg clearly was like inspired by the twilight zone and wanted to kind of bring that magic to the screen. And then, I mean, obviously we'd see this later too, when he created amazing stories. So I think I just wanted to, before I forgot, I wanted to bring in that DNA into this as well, but this opening sequence, um, yeah, I, it still really bothers me and I like it. And, and then we get to our, our narrator, which I appreciate more and more every day. Yeah. So uh, our narrator on this, uh, right after the sequence ends, we shoot up to the sky and hear Burgess Meredith's voice. Um, and he gives us the whole Rod Serling uh, intro in that. And it's it's wonderful. It's it's definitely something once you're a little older, you get to appreciate it and see all and connect all the dots, you know, like, like who, who would have been a better person to do the narration for this for this movie? You know, yeah, I think of a single person and he does a great job with this in the way when he does like the little intros per segments, it's like he, he understands the expectation, you know, and I, I appreciate that. And it was a nice little warm hug of, um, like nostalgia, you know, for, for that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you hear in his voice, he gives us the goods. Um, the music I have to uh, bring in here too, is uh, by Jerry Goldsmith. So you see that on the intro with all the, you know, all the, what is it? The 
the you know music by blah, blah, yeah all the you know, the intro yeah. credits which yeah, is like intro it gets real confusing because it's like you'll see especially at the end credits where it's like story one based upon by so and so and written by it's like it gets real confusing in a hurry about where these stories come from so yeah so yeah so our our next segment here is uh they call it segment one time out um so this uh this one is partially a reworking of a original from twilight zone called a quality of mercy there's it's been we reworked quite a bit but yes um erected uh by john landis again and then our cast here a very brief uh cast is a uh, bill connor played by vic morrow well, vic morrow is bill connor yeah yeah um well i guess i yeah so uh doug mark mccarth uh plays larry uh charles hanahan uh plays ray so um so in this uh, segment here, uh, we meet uh, Bill. Well, oh, yeah, we will talk about that. It's real quick. I just want to say, uh, Steve, does any of those names stand out to you? Like, is there any of those actors like, you know, because there's a couple in there. I think they're I think worthy of mentioning in terms of connections to things that we love. Um, and I'm blanking on the gentleman's name right now, but the one gentleman's from uh, The Thing. Yeah, Charles Hallahan. Probably the one. He's, he's Ray. Uh, we have um, like Vic Morrow. Like I, I've uh, turned. I I keep finding him. Like we, you, you and I, Steve, we covered him uh, on Invasion of the Podcast. When we were doing our year of the knockoff. He was in 1980s The Bronx Warriors. He was the main police guy chasing down those uh, those those tra- the the gang members. If you remember that, that's right. I forgot um, about that. Yeah, I, what, that was his, I, actually his last produced film. Like we'll get into reasons, but yeah, that was the thing he did before this um yeah so just to kind of flash your memory there yeah that's that's interesting because i remember seeing it in my research for this episode and i was like oh i gotta uh put that in my back pocket so that i remember and then i completely forgot when you asked but yeah i i do remember talking about him uh for the uh bronx warriors yeah and he was also in a a movie that i'm going to try to get everybody to watch it's called it's from 77 called message from space which is a really weird um i'd say star wars ripoff but like star like steve can he'll fight me but star wars has influence from japanese stuff so it's like this weird echo chamber of things it's a it's a fun little movie but i also want to mention here this is for terry and for you steve uh steve Steve William, Stephen William is his name. He was the bar patron, the one that kept standing up and telling like Vic Morrow, like you need to calm down. Uh, he was Creighton Duke from Jason Goes to Hell, so I was expecting him to be like, "Give me your finger." I'm just going to snap it off right now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was looking at him and I'm like, God, he looks familiar. And then I looked him up and I was like, oh, yeah, uh, from the final Friday. Well, to be fair, though, the man has a lot of credits. Like he's oh, yeah, all over the for place. Sure. But yeah. for whatever reason, I'm just like, oh, yep, uh, there it is. Uh, he's in he's, the X-Files. Uh, he's, he does a lot of stuff. But I just know that you – I know, that Steve, you've told me repeatedly that Jason Goes to Hell is your favorite Friday the 13th movie. So I just wanted to make sure that – He's real quiet now. Okay. <laughs> Terry, you're telling me that this is your favorite Friday the 13th movie. I've found new respect for Friday, uh, the final Friday, but uh, that's another discussion for another podcast. And then we also are going to have John Larroquette show up here as um, as a member of a clan. That's the other one I want to just mention because it's very, very obvious when he shows up. So I don't want to step on uh, uh, Terry's toes here and uh, you know just run like a bull through a china shop, but uh, you really are getting uh, – all of your Night Court uh, references into not only our show, but also uh, uh, Strange Highways, simply because 
you have not only one but two characters. Yes, I had to. I wanted to make sure that we we don't we will get to the other one when we get there. Yeah, I, I okay. was like, I'll look at this all these Nightcore connections. Uh, the, the one guy I wanted to make sure that uh, like if you guys had any point of reference there is that that uh, uh, the guy who plays Larry. Doug McCraith, I think his name is pronounced. Okay, um, he was in Porky's and Black Christmas. That I, as soon as I was okay, watching, rewatching yeah. this, I was like, "Dude, how the hell do I know that guy?" And he was one of the gym teachers in Porky's that was talking about <laughs> the 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 girl where you had to take her. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, '80s movies are not problematic. Oh, not at all. all. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, they called her Lassie. Yeah. Um, oh, geez. Just, uh, so, so yeah, this one. Um, uh, yeah, it, uh, this is we got uh, we got Vic Morrow's Bill, Bill Connor, a guy who uh, he just he reminds me a lot of um, the gentleman that we talked about in the encounter, like the guy up in the attic that was the World War II vet that you know maybe not have been the worst guy, but he's taken the worst. Like he just hates everybody now and just believes that he's better than. And he, his his sequence in the bar here talking about how he lost his job to a coworker. Uh, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, the, a Jewish person and just that tirade of him, like, just that is like, it was uncomfortable then it is horrific now to watch him just tee off and just watching everybody else around him. I, uh, whew, I just, I, I just, it was very uncomfortable watching him, especially with the conviction that he was saying and the words he was using and that it's 2021 and that guy probably be elected to office right now. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 uh, Bill is down on his luck. Uh, you know, he, he he obviously what you're saying he lost his promotion, but then he's throwing out slurs and he's he's blaming all the troubles of the world on every other ethnic uh, huh. person, yeah. like of, of other backgrounds and that. And he has no regard for anybody around him. He's speaking so loudly to her fr- his friends Larry and Ray, and they're like, "Hey, dude, just chill out." And he says a couple other racist, racist slurs while um, there are three uh, African-American gentlemen behind him. And they start getting uncomfortable and calling him out like, hey, you might want to settle down. I like the, I like the, what, um, what Creighton Duke says is like, you know, I don't care what you guys think. We don't have to hear it. Also, I'm going to break your finger later. Is yeah. what he says to him. Yeah. So uh, Ray says to the, the, to the gentleman like, hey, you know, he's, he's had a, some really bad uh, luck today. He had some bad news at work. And he's like, all right. Well, whatever. And he just sits back down and Bill is not done. So he just keeps on yelling. He pushes a waitress and that, and he walks out the door. He assaults, well, before they even assaults the one waitress by the grabbing or putting her in his lap. And yeah. it's like, yeah, you know, so we, we all don't like Bill Connor. Yeah. Right? Bill's kind of a scumbag. Yep. And so that's when he exits the bar, you know, and then, and so I, I put in my notes here for a guy that seems to be, uh, you know, very anti everything and says, I'm an American and this is my country. When he ends up out in like, like a uh, Nazi occupied France, I feel like in 2021, he'd be like, yeah, things are starting to look pretty good around here. You know, like I would expect him to be like, what is it? What is it? Portland? My kind of town, you know, whatever. Anyway. So, <laughs> So yeah, but so no one appreciates my uh, my uh, commentary about 2021 and how this is unfortunately uh, not, uh, no uh, no I, I I agree 100 percent I didn't want to interrupt no like, no it's just watching this there are things that happen in pop culture where I view them now and I'm like how is this still a thing like this feels you know um, even like something like monsters that are due on Maple Street still Street still feels very prevalent what 60 years later like this is also like 40 years later and you're like 
how is this still a thing? Because it's it could literally be set in 2021 with the way this guy's acting. Um, and sadly, you know, I, I always want to believe that things have gotten better, uh, you know, and I shouldn't say sadly. I want to believe that things have gotten better, but sadly, that is not always the case, and we're seeing more of a reflection of that. I think this is a piece that's probably still at home unfortunately in 2021 as it was in 1983. Yeah. So like I, with this comes like we, we find out like over the course of the segment um, that he, he doesn't necessarily realize, but it, and, and, and credit also to the way they got the setup that we don't do like the quantum leap bit of like, he's like, I'm an America. This is me. And, but every single person that sees him, whatever he's at, they see the thing they hate the most. Right. And I'm glad that we didn't get like the reflection in a window or anything. It's just, it's just Vic Morrow the entire time reacting to all these different like time periods and being like, like and his, and his, um, just disbelief about like, how is this happening? Not even like shifting around time. Right. Cause we get him going to a couple different places here. Uh, it's just, uh, how not indignant, but it's just like, he can't fathom. And it's like, I think that's a big part of this, that watching it now never really occurred to me watching it when I was a kid. Like he's, he's adamant throughout that he is just him. And why are people doing this to him? And it's like, it's like the point is so, so big that it's like, and it's his face. He's just incapable of seeing it. Yeah. And, and, and it comes a little bit clearer too. You know, he's, he's uh, like you said, he's in France, Nazi Germany kind of like is still the thing. And um, people are speaking to him in German, and he's like, "I am American. I don't speak German." Like he's really confused. He's, he doesn't have any understanding what the hell they want from him. They start start chasing him around, and he ends up walking, uh, running into uh, a lady's house while she's serving dinner to her children. Yeah, she doesn't speak English either, so she rats him out, and then here comes the chase again, and. He is on the side of the window, like this uh, little ledge. Like, yeah, and then like the German troops are like, "Yeah, we could we could shoot him, or we could just scare him off a ledge." And that's also very harrowing because mm. just seeing how much glee the Nazis have because they have their, they know this guy's not going to make it, right? right? So that's, so they start firing at him, and then all of a sudden, um, he he falls off of the uh, the the ledge, and it's at this point now that he. He's trying to get up, but he's actually on a different ground now. He's in a different area, and we find out that he's about to be lynched by a, a Ku Klux Klan. Like yeah, he fell, into, he fell into like um like Ash or something and hit the ground. I don't know. Jeez, um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm back in Ohio. Um, you know, Ash Alabama. Let's say that anyway. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like he's, you know, the, the clan's got him, and that's whatever. You know, like he's trying to show them, like, hey, I, you know he's saying I'm white, I'm white. And they're like, you know, they're not listening to him. And like, and as they're in the process of like going to, to lynch him, there's that burning cross. And that's when we see John Larroquette, like the one guy, like there's like two guys not wearing hoods. Right. So that's what I was going to ask you guys with this being, um, a, a sentence of execution with John Larroquette. Does this, does this make this a night court? That was going to be my question to you guys. I can. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got nothing. <laughs> I, yeah, I got nothing, but I will say, uh, you know, I read in the trivia that uh, I thought of that joke three days ago. Come on, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, I, I think that Larroquette, uh, from the trivia that I read, 
was the reason he's not in a uh, KKK outfit is simply because he wanted to make sure that his face was seen, which is weird. I get it as an actor. You always want to be seen. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're playing a pretty awful guy. Maybe, yeah. maybe put on the suit. Yeah, I mean, it's still striking though. Like, and then yeah. whenever we get, uh, we get Vic Morrow like breaking free and he ends up like, like kicking that guy and then falling into the cross and catching on fire. I could have watched that for hours. That, that was amazing. Uh, and then he breaks away and he runs into the water and the dogs are chasing him. And when he dips down, he ends up like in a marsh and he realizes that he's like now in Vietnam. Right. And so you, but there's a bit where he's like hiding from like the, the Viet Cong and the U S troops, but like the snake comes by my question to you guys, what do you think the snake sees? Cause it seems a little hostile, but it just kind of lets him go. Like I was hoping for a second, it'd be like, you know, I don't know, like the snake would see like a large mongoose and just be angry at it. You know, like, <laughs> I'll be honest. I was expecting this conversation to veer more towards, uh, you know, the, the tragic accident as well, opposed to what do you think that snake was thinking? Well, so I get there. And I I'm also, I'm also a son answer. of a bitch. Cause I'm, I, cause my, my panic response is to, to make jokes until we get to that point. So no, no, no you know. it's fine. I just, I was like, I do not have an answer. For- well, that's, <laughs> a, that's an interesting question because I was kind of wondering that about the Viet Cong and the, uh, the American troops and how they perceive him. So if the, if the Vietnamese, uh, soldiers would have seen him, would he have looked white? He probably would have just looked like him, you know, like in yeah. terms of like, cause, cause he was very adamant about the words he used to describe them, uh, when he was over, well, when he was overseas fighting in the war. Right. Um, well, he was talking about Korean people, not, not Vietnamese people, but I'm sure to, uh, Mr. Connor, they're all the same, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm sure he would look just, just like him, but like to the American troops. Yeah. Um, he probably, it, it, uh, so uh, it seems a little ambiguous at the, at the, at this moment though, because they don't see him, the, the Vietnamese soldiers, and it doesn't seem like the American soldiers see him because they just start. I don't know if you noticed, but they're firing in four different directions, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're just mowing it down like Predator, you know, like just mowing everything down. And then um, one of the soldiers just like halts all the firing and grabs a grenade and chucks it about 30 feet to right where he's standing, which if he didn't know where he was, he has a hell of a good aim because he <laughs> throws yeah, it right by him. That's true. So, but yeah, so again, with the ambiguous uh, nature of this scene, they don't, they don't call out slurs. They don't say anything. It's they, there's just somebody there, which that was a good call. Yeah. So then when, so then we get like the cycling back, like the grenade blows, uh, you know, uh, our uh, Mr. Connor and back into Nazi occupied France. And that's whenever, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he spotted. And then that's when they put the star David on him and put him on a train car with the rest of the other people that's going to a death camp. Right. And that's when he is like trying to plead and beg and say he's not like them. And then he looks out the slats at the train car and sees his buddies leaving the bar and he's like calling out to them. And then the train pulls away. He's forever doomed. Steve. So like, you're right. This is where we're going to talk about um, the accident and and everything because uh, you would recommend it to me. And if people aren't aware of this, I mean, it's kind of one of those things that even if you've never seen Twilight Zone, the movie you've heard about. Um, the helicopter accident that killed Vic Morrow and two children. Um, but Steve, you'd recommended to me to watch the cursed films episode of the shutter series, um, which I did. So, um, yeah, I, I mentioned it. I don't know that recommend is basically okay, the best word to use. That's it's, fair. It's yeah. 
hard to watch, and I feel like it's a little sensationalized for how much they use the footage. The, the footage is, is compelling to see it once, but it's beaten into the episode over and over again. Um, I feel like we we gotten enough of it once to get the impression. But uh, yeah, the episode is, if you are somebody who's interested in what happened on this set, um, it's a very interesting look at uh, not only... Uh, director John Landis, but also the people around him and what happened that caused this accident. Um, and I, I don't want to go too far into this because I actually feel like this is the strongest of the the four um, pieces that we get within the film. Uh, but um, I really did lose some respect for Landis, who I love American Werewolf in London. I think it's a, a genius movie. Um, it's hilarious. It's scary. Um, it, it was one of those movies that really made me realize that there could be a hybrid uh, horror film uh, and well done. But that said, you know, you have to separate art from artist, which I always have trouble doing. In this case, I do wonder, um, uh, you know, it's 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 not requis it's not a requisite watch, but I, I I feel like people's opinions may be changed by watching the episode is is what I would say. And uh, yeah. again, I, I I think this is the strongest of the the four. I'm just putting that out there now because we're talking about it. But um, I, I I I I try to find words to like put the awfulness to it, and I can't. No, um, so, so I'm just kind of stammering no, and it's, it's horrific me, to watch. Let me not make jokes for, for right now. So I will turn off the joke switch. Uh, so I, I watched that, 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 that episode of cursed films. That's the only one I've seen. I just, it's, you know, for as long as it is padded, isn't the word I'd use to describe it. I think, um, like there's, there's elements in that episode that I think are important, but like, there's so much more things that went on with the story that I, like, I didn't know that, um, obviously after this happened, because since Spielberg was a producer, he was arrested alongside with Landis. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it wasn't talked about in that episode. I'm going to guess because since Spielberg's still an important guy, there's probably a lot of things people aren't going to say on camera right now. And there's a book that they referenced in this. Uh, it's called, um, outrageous conduct, art, ego and the twilight zone case. I want to find a copy of this book, but it is out of print and it is expensive as all get out to get a hold of. I feel like that's what I want to dig into because not only did this happen and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of finger pointing about like, you know, Landis bl you know, blamed some of the special effects guys and they blamed everybody else. And then like that, uh, that art director that, and that's worth it's worth watching that episode of curse films to hear his story. His story is gut wrenching. Like just the effect that they had on his life and the guilt that he feels, even though, you know, he's forever tied to it. Um, I think there's a lot here to get into. Um, so I, I mean, I, so I'm not informed enough to actually dig into it as much as I would like to, and I don't want to make light of that. Uh, so Steve, you are right. Like this, I, I was being jokey to start because I, this, I saw that footage from that episode. Uh, and you're right. They do play it like too much and I had never seen it before. And it is just, you know, you're seeing the last moments of people being alive and it's just, it is. Whew, it is. It's not. It, it's it's terrible, like you just said. So, with that being said, do you want to know how how the the sequence was supposed to end? Had that stunt been pulled off? 
Steve, do you know how this was supposed to actually end or not? I feel like I, I did read about it, and for whatever reason, it's not uh, okay. entering into my brain right now. So this was supposed to be like the one moment where we actually see uh, Bill Connor's character actually show an ounce of compassion and save the kids, right? And show that maybe he's capable of doing more than just being a bigot and a, and a jackass, right? So what happens is, is that he ends up back in Nazi-occupied France with the kids in tow because he has them with them when they, whenever this, the shift happens and the guards take them and just take them like off camera and shoot them and throw him on a train. So it's like, they're like, we can't, they said, there's no way we could have continued on with any of this. And it's like, so they, they did this ending the way they did. Cause they had already had him on the box car. Um, and so uh, if you don't know narratively, what was supposed to be in here with the accident and the additional little pieces, you wouldn't think twice about this narrative because it got everything you needed across. And I think it's one of those ones where, you know, Terry and I've talked, you know, uh, like in the original series of the twilight zone, sometimes it's just, it's frustrating when you get an episode with a character you don't like. And then it, it's like, and it just keeps going on and on and on and they keep getting punished. I think this, this actually works in this case because he is so unlikable and you get to actually be that viewer of seeing now, you know what it's like, and now you're going to know what it's like for the rest of your life. And so yeah, I'll agree with you, with you, Steve. I think this is a very strong segment. I just think that because of all the controversy around it, it's always going to forever be, be blighted. Uh, and it also affected the rest of the production of the movie too. Like um, George Miller actually finished his principal shooting for his segment and then was so disgusted by the apparent lack of safety protocol that he just kind of was like, I'm not doing any post-production and walked away. And Spielberg was so despondent that he shot his segment in like six or eight days and just wanted to be done with it. So you could tell that everybody is being professionals and finishing their work but it it really just took whatever goodwill and good intention in this project and just destroyed it. So um, there you go. That was, that's what I've learned through reading about this. So there you go guys. Like, you, yeah, you, yeah. It, it kind of, I hate to say it, but it, it, it casted such a shadow over the film that it really didn't get all the accolades that it was going to everybody, even the fans are just like, Ooh, I don't know about this film. Cause it didn't do well. It didn't do as well as they had hoped. And they even yeah. wanted to have some sequels that were going to go along the same type of format. And just because of all that, the studio and all, all everybody involved was just like, no, let's forget about it. Let's put it, put it to bed. Well, yeah. And so that also, we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, Steve, does that like, you know, I, does that kind of put, I think there's proper context that you wanted to bring up. And I think that, I think that's very important to the segment. So uh, does that, you know, I don't know if there's anything else there to, to say about it. So yeah, uh, this did sort of hang over as a shadow of the, I don't want to say the episode or the uh, story, but um, it was the thing that I was like, okay, we're going to have to address this. So when you came out jokes of blazing, I was like, ah, I got nothing here. I, you know, my brain is just still stuck on the tragedy of it. But yeah, I think that you, you, you summed it up pretty well. I think that, uh, you know, for people who, um, are interested in it. You know, that episode is there. Um, and I, I, I think that, uh, 
you know, it does. I wanted to ask you this, actually. I, I was going to wait till the end of the episode to ask you guys this, but I'll just do it now. Um, do you think the legacy of the film, taking the tragedy out of it, do you think that part of the film may have been hurt just simply because they decided to bring classic episodes to the screen and new interpretations? Like, what if this had been an all-new, inspired, all-four stories, all-new? Like, what if this had been their own takes on doing a Twilight Zone-style story? Do you think that that may have fared better? Or do you think it is specifically not only the quality of the movie, but also the tragedy surrounding around it that really hurt it? Well, I think, and um, I'll go first, Terry, because uh, I'm already talking, because, you know, that's what I do. I apologize. Uh, I think that because... Um, you, th- th- this is the one that's probably, well, I mean, let, let, I'll take that back. The other stories that we see represented here are all they're, they're taking a lot of different directions. They're, they're not beat for beat. Well, even Terry 20,000 feet is not exactly beat for beat. What happens with like the original episode? I mean, it's pretty close, but the characterizations and, and everything's a little different too. Right. So I think that approach, like to where you kind of not modernize it, but let, let these creators, because this is what I was going to say for the end of the episode. And I'll put it out there. Now, where else do we get this, this kind of culmination of talent coming together? You know, cause Spielberg was just going off like a rocket right now. And Landis was like hitting his big stride. Uh, George Miller had made, you know, um, like Mad Max and was coming up too. And then we had, um, Joe Dante, Joe Dante the howling. Yeah. And he was going to go on and do Gremlins. So like you get these guys like really like when they're just starting to just take off and it's like, where, like, whenever you've ever had a movie like this, where you've had like this, this much momentum going into it and, and like big names. I mean, I know now like, um, and I don't even want to, I shouldn't even bring this up in the same like, you know, breath, but it's like, like the, like the ABCs of death or whatever. Like you get some like, you know, indie darling people or like the VHS stuff, um, the VHS films where you have a couple segments here and there by like people that are starting to get known or masters of horror, but you know, it's yeah, not but quite I mean, the same. Yeah. It's just, but like with this, though, it's like the confluence of this. I mean, I'm going to say this now and I'm going to be proven wrong. And I hope so. It's like, I can't think of another project where you had this much coming into it. Right. So the further answer your question, Steve, like letting them all kind of do, their own thing. Cause Spielberg, and we'll talk about the second segment in a moment, you know, he had a couple of different ideas for what he wanted to do as well for stories. And, um, like, so them taking, uh, episodes of the twilight zone and kind of uh, revisiting them, uh, and updating them, especially, I think Joe Dante, like, I think he decided to go bonkers with it and rightfully so. Um, I think that helped because, like just like the beginning of the movie when you had the two guys in the car saying, "Oh man, remember that episode? Remember this episode?" Um, points against Dan Aykroyd for bringing up a kind of a stopwatch. I didn't trust <laughs> him from the start when he talked about that episode, liking it. But like that was that's the kind of the way it was then, right? Like because the, the stuff was a syndication, but you didn't have as much easy access to like we do now, where we can go back and watch all those episodes when we want. Here it's like you might have caught one episode once as a kid and just never caught it again. And it's like, Oh man, I remember that. So I think having some of that familiarity, I think would have helped this film. And I think that's also why it's probably, um, upon revisit, I think that's why people still come back to it. Cause if it was his own original stories the entire time, like people could easily dismiss it and be like, well, that's not the twilight zone. I know. 
you know, it's a Terry. So yeah. it, for me, I've been watching this since I was a kid. I was born in 83. So that, you know, ever since, you know, I was born, I've been exposed to weird films and the, I've never known about the, the tragic, tragic events that took place in this until I was like much older. So that n- never casted that onto me. But even with the stories and like having the title of the Twilight Zone, I mean, it's the groundwork is exactly what it needs to be. It's never affected me. Uh, even watching it now and watching this story, the only thing that actually kind of hardens me as an, a, an adult or as a person is like, it's the language that's in this and the kind of character that uh, Mr. Connor is. And I think that everything else works just fine for me. I don't really feel like ne- anything needed to change and. I'll, I'll still look at this in the same light, even after knowing all, all the things that happened. I just think that John Landis is a problematic person. So, fair enough. So, um, I also say here. Let me. I'll, um, and we'll, we'll we'll go on to the second segment here. Uh, so, I read the novelization. So, I read. I like. I love the title of the book. It is Twilight Zone, the movie, the book. Like it's <laughs> like it's like Spaceballs, the Breakfast Here or whatever, right? Um, and it was actually written by Robert Block. The guy who wrote Psycho. Nice. Um, and so what he actually did is that he wrote the the four short stories based upon the movie. And he was only shown two actual film segments and then had to write stories based upon the, the screenplays of the other two. Hmm. So it's interesting seeing Robert Block interpret Richard Matheson. We'll talk more about that later. Um, so the book was actually published with the way the movie was originally framed, which was the first segment is timeout. Uh, the second segment is uh, Terror at 20,000 Feet. The third segment is It's a Good Life. And the fourth one was going to be Kick the Can. And so you could also see, and I think this speaks to your question as well, Steve, like I think they knew, like, you know, especially as they're making this, is like we got to change this up a little bit because I don't know, like there's probably things that might have been working, might not have been working, but you could tell there was a lot of behind the scenes things obviously uh, happening. And even uh, Robert Block said that, when he was originally given the story outline for timeout, he had to hastily change the ending because of um, the, the helicopter crash, because um, the, the short story actually follows along with just the way the, the movie is where he ends up on the train and that's it. So um, I just, I was interesting that I looked up, I'm like, this book's not in the right order, but no, the book is the movie isn't. Hmm. So Fascinating. I didn't even know that that book came out. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a passage to you guys later. Actually, it's going to get from kick the can. That's going to make you both feel uncomfortable and laugh. So that's a tease everybody. So, all right. Um, we good. We, we good with timeout. We don't want to talk about that anymore. Like, yeah. I think, okay. I think we can move on to the next yeah. segment. Okay. I think, I think I'm good with that too. Uh, quality of mercy, by the way, season three, episode 15, original series worth the watch. You got, uh, you got George decay and you got, um, uh, your owl from the quantum leap. Not George Takei's not in that. Leonard Nimoy's in that. And you got um, Al from Quantum Leap is the lead in that. Anyway, good little episode. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, and to uh, our next segment we go with, uh, it is called Kick the Cans. So segment two, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, this one was written by George Clayton Johnson for the original series, who also did like six other episodes and Logan's run for uh, other points of reference there. 
And uh, our cast is uh, Mr. Bloom, is Scatman Crothers, and a bunch of other yeah, <laughs> a bunch of other people. Scatman Crothers is Mr. Bloom, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, oh, Mr. Yeah. Bloom. I, I, I just like how you just <laughs> want to keep calling the main characters by their. I don't know I, why I did. I, it I do that. it all the time. I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, you just run through who you got, and we'll we'll talk about. Oh, it real quick. that's uh, that's actually. I didn't know if you wanted the rest of the cast. There, oh, I, there's I can a lot. Get, of- there is, but I'll give you the ones that I have, and then Steve, you jump into if any of the names jump out at you. So, Scatman Crothers, we we all know him from The Shining. Um, I know him from Transformers, the cartoon. Uh, but, oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> he was the voice of Jazz. Uh, nice. Yeah, uh, and, but I, I I can't help it. I like him, but yeah, we also have Bill Quinn here as Leo Conroy. He's the angry man. Um, I just happened to scroll through. Terry, you'll appreciate this. Four episodes of Hawaiian Eye. So there you go. We got a Hawaiian Eye connection in the movie. Uh, Selma Diamond. Uh, that was what Steve was teasing earlier. Uh, she is Mrs. Weinstein. She is also in Night Court. There you go. Night Court connection. Mr. G. Murray Matheson. Uh, he was the clown in the episode Five Characters in Search of an Exit. My favorite episode of season two. Uh, and then Peter Bracco is Mr. Mute, and he was in two episodes of the original series. So, uh, Steve, do you have anybody from this segment that um, jumps out at you? Well, I mean, Scatman and Selma uh, Diamond are the two that that really jumped out at me. So, uh, is there a big one that I'm missing? No, no. I just think that Scatman and Selma should have been a TV show, and that would have been amazing. I would have loved that. <laughs> Hopefully they were solving crimes together. <laughs> They're going from retirement home to retirement home, just solving crimes and making people happy, Steve. So. Isn't that how Matlock did it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that, you know, just Tim and the, what didn't Don not show up like a little bit in the early parts of Matlock. I don't remember. Anyway, I'm <laughs> sure he did. Yeah. I'm not sure either. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, yeah. So this is, a, this is a retelling of the season three episode 21 story. Kick the can as, as Terry mentioned by George Clayton Johnson. Um, yeah, I, I just, this is, uh, old people on an old person's home. We got, uh, them all kind of just, you know, wasting away their days. Um, and we have Mr. Bloom uh, being this guy kind of observing everything. And he ends up seeing, uh, Leo outside, always wanting to go with his son and, and daughter-in-law to leave the home. Cause he just doesn't want to be there. And, uh, and he's always been turned away and everything's, you know, he's always disappointed and he comes in and he's, he is the guy that's just like, he looks like Walter, the puppet, uh, from Jeff Dunham became a person. He really does. That's and I was, I like. was trying to place this gentleman. <laughs> I was like, who the hell, how do I know this guy? And, and it would have been amazing perfect. if the, if the, the son was Jeff Dunham, he's like, no, Walter, you have to stay in the home now. Like, you know, you're... God, you're, you called it, man. <laughs> God, it does. It looks exactly like him. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. And then, so the whole thing is, like, Mr. Bloom is like, well, what, you know, talking about, like, what it means to be young and, like, what did you guys do when you're young? And everybody's, like, mentioning all the things they wanted. And it's very, um, it's very golly gee whiz Spielbergian right there. It feels like, man, what if the Goonies all grew up together and just became like old people in a nursing home. That's <laughs> I know, I know the Goonies was directed by Richard Donner, but we, we know who produced that. So it's a lot of just, you know, nostalgia for what was. And Bloom is like, we should get together tonight and play a game. Kick the can. Leo is like, nah, I'm good. I'd rather sleep. Cause I'm old. Everybody's here old. You're going to kill everybody. And the scat man's like, nah, I'm just going to have all these brittle bone people with all their bird bones go right outside and kick a can. And you know, there's magic in that old tin can they found. 
and they go outside and they become kids and they play. Yeah. So yeah. they're out in the middle of the night uh, and they, I've never, th- I have never played kick the can. Have you played it as a child or anything? Um, I mean, we've done like hide and go seek at nighttime. How, like, b- how about you, Steve? Have you ever played kick the can? I'm sorry. I was asleep. That's how boring this uh, segment is. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Steve's told no, me he's I've more of the chase the hoop with the stick kind of guy mm. than was the kick the can guy. I, I, I've never played kick the can. Uh, you know, I guess the one game that I played as a kid that uh, makes me reflect now and go, wow, that really shouldn't have been a thing was just a game that was called guns. <laughs> <laughs> I got a toy gun. Yeah, I got a toy gun. I have a toy gun. Let's just go play guns. And it was just us pretending to shoot each other for probably hours in the yard. Yeah, so. yeah. it's like hide and go seek, but you're like, I saw you. I got you. No, you didn't. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, when they were talking about Kick the Can, I had, I had no idea how this was played, but you learn real quick. Um, so uh, who's that? Mr. Bloom throws up the can, and as it falls and hits the ground, everybody's supposed to go run and hide, and he counts to five or whatever. And as he calls out that he's looking for him, he he finds uh, one of the the folks hiding behind a bush. And that's when one of the other, uh, I think they called him Mr. Mute or whatever. He comes over and kicks the can. And then, oh, everybody comes out, Ali Al Axon free and that. And they keep on playing. And then that's when you see um, what, what's the character's name again? And the the oh, oh, the um, the mean guy. What's yeah, Walter. Walter. No, it's, no it's, it's Leo Conroy. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Leo is up in his bedroom or up in his bed. He's still sleeping, and all of a sudden the voices start to ch- turn to children's voices, and he's like, oh, "Damn kids, I'm glad." <laughs> I, so I will say though, like, and, and Steve, you're talking about the segment being boring. I, I you know, uh, you're not wrong. Uh, ver- like, and uh, we shouldn't do a one-to-one comparison to the original episode. I do like some of like the update. I do like the transformation of the audio track from old to young. That's cool. Um, and also Spielberg can't get away from his twinkly noises. Can he at this point in his career, everything has to be twinkly. Did you guys notice that where everything is like, it's, it's so magical. Everything is so twinkly and sparkly and odd. Oh man. Oh, but, golly yeah. gee. Uh, yeah. And, and again, this might have something to do with him filming it in only six days. So, you know, it's kind of rush, but yeah, uh, you hear all the children and all of a sudden you look outside and they're all children again, except for Mr. Bloom. I like that. Also the one lady, uh, she had a cat and the cat's a kitten again. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I can't help it. I like that gag, but that also implies the cat was like 80 years old and then reversed back in time. Like, like, I mean, maybe in cat years, I don't know, but yeah. Um, but yeah, they got the kids playing or whatever. I, I don't know what it is, Steve. And, and I guess we're going to fight about this. I'm not saying that the segment's great cause it, it is kind of there, but something about the moment when all the kids realize they're kids and scat man, like Mr. Bloom looks at them. He's like, go play. I don't know what it was about that hitting me. Like on a Sunday afternoon, it was just like, Maybe because, you know, I'm watching this, I'm just, you know, a little older now, and I'm just like, yeah, you kids, you go play, you go do whatever you want, it's just fine. You know, like, it caught me a little emotionally, and I don't know, I think because Scatman Carruthers just, he just emanates warmth, and I just wanted to hug him. Maybe that's what it was. All right, so I'll, I'll say this. Uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg is a genius. He is. I mean, uh, name a Spielberg movie, and even if you don't like it, you're like, yeah, it's still pretty good. Like, this is not me knocking on Spielberg because I love Spielberg. It's just if you are given five seasons of The Twilight Zone and you've got to adapt one story, 
And I understand that there are things that affected his decision, like the tragedy from from the uh, the previous uh, – I keep wanting to say episode – from the previous section that we just talked about. I certainly understand that. I understand that he filmed this in six days. I get that he probably was also looking to do something that was lighthearted and wasn't reflective of a you know the tone of probably what he was living through. Uh, that said, you get that many episodes – and you can choose one. I, I feel like if you pick kick the can and don't do a better job than the episode did, which I did go back and rewatch. I, I actually rewatched all the episodes too, just for oh, nice. preparing for this. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like this, the episode was actually done better. And I, I don't mean that to be like in a way of like, Oh, you know, remake suck or uh, the cover version of this song sucks. And the original is the best. Like, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that like, uh, there's a schmaltziness to this segment. They sort of like, I feel like we're really being played. Like they're really trying, like Spielberg's really trying to tug at our heartstrings. Oh, but sure. like every time the young girl who was supposed to be, uh, you know, young Selma diamond talked, I just, I was just cringing. I was like, this, this feels so <laughs> cutesy and, and just yeah. so like, Oh, isn't this magical and wonderful. And it's just a thing that I, I realize has probably come out of the experience and, and his trying to get through it as quickly as possible and not wanting to take on a big story. I, I get that. But I even feel like the ending is stronger to the original. Um, there's a tacked on like, you know, uh, hook ish slash, uh, which would he would later direct like eight years later anyway. But yeah, uh, Mr. G like staying the kid and being the Peter Pan and, and like, yeah, like that, did you see him actually fly out the window? He actually floated away. Did you notice that? I'm like, yeah. I didn't notice that until I'm like, Oh my gosh, he, he floated away. He just didn't jump out the window. Like that's weird. Anyway, I thought he just dropped to his death. Yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, like tomorrow, tomorrow, bank, you know, that's it. And they're like, Oh, well, there we go. And then whenever like, when the, the the ladies come around, like, well, where's Mr. Ag? It's like just check in between the petunias <laughs> yeah, over there. here. Yeah, go check. That's why they're setting up the tomatoes later. They, like, <laughs> you're you're not wrong, Steve, and I agree with you completely. I just this feels like it's like Spielberg is trying to Spielberg Spielberg, but he was trying to like do it on autopilot. I feel like, and he there was that manu he was trying to do that manufactured thing that he had already done, and you're right, it, it doesn't shine through here. It just it. It does feel very Spielberg, though. There, there was something here, though, and I read in the notes that actually Spielberg wanted to do a couple of different storylines prior to choosing this. Yeah, one of them was the people who are due on uh, monsters are due on Maple Street. He wanted to do that, but because of the film, like filming restrictions and not not being able to have children on set at night, which yeah, <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Um, he, there was just going to be too many issues with trying to film that, especially budgetary and all that. Another story that was considered for uh, this movie was, um, was going to be a bully who has the tables turned on him on Halloween night, but there was going to be also problems with that one too. So eventually just kind of settled for this story, which again, brings in children and stuff. And like you were, like you guys were talking about, it has that Steven Spielberg 
fingerprint all over it where it's like children, lovey-dovey. Like, like you know. really large fingerprints on the side of a car, right? Yeah, Terry, very, very right. So, <laughs> uh, no, um, so yeah, uh, it, it is what it is. I, I like in terms of like when you get to the final production of the, of the four segments, I can see why this is where it is now versus where it was slotted to be versus the production order, like shown in the book here, um, the novelization of the movie. Because uh, after you deal with, you know, time out, that that is a heavy hitter and it's like okay let's just give us a moment to kind of come back to this and i'll also put this to you steve since you watched uh, the actual episodes that these segments were kind of based on like i do you think maybe part of also the thesis statement for this film was kind of show like what the twilight zone is capable of in terms of being you know the the sinner you know being punished and then but also like the twilight zone isn't inherently evil it's just different so like, what do you think about that? I think that that's, that's fair. And I, I realize I'm being hard on this uh, again. Oh, no, it's fine. You I can... don't know what my reaction was when I was watching this. I don't know why I just got so annoyed with it. Maybe the fact that it's Spielberg, maybe had it been a lesser filmmaker, I would have just been like, yeah, it's fine. But the fact that it's Spielberg, I was just like, ah, you're better than this. And I, I, I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, this is what his career, you know, of the list of things that he's done in his career, this is going to come up like at like number 50. So it's, it's not like this is defining his career, but I, I, I do think, um, you know, I, and okay, here's a bold statement for you. If you want to play that card, I bet you my least favorite episode of the twilight zone. We've talked about this before is Casey, the bat. Makes me angry oh, just the, watching it. The mighty Casey, yeah. <laughs> mighty Casey, I'm sorry. Casey the Bat. The mighty Casey. My apologies. Yeah. You hate it so much um, that you can't even get the name straight. I agree with that. That's right. fine, yes. Um, with that in mind, I think Spielberg could do something amazing with that. And I think that's where my disappointment comes here. Because I think the actual the actual episode, while it's not like a, a standout for the series uh, of Kick the Can, I feel like it is... Um, a stronger episode. We'll put it that way. Um, so I was just disappointed by the route he took with it. And, you know, again, this is being leveled after him, you know, making it 40 years ago, you know, and I can see all the conditions that went into making it. It's just one of those things where I was watching and I was like, Oh, like, this is what you do. Like, I, I, I don't know. I would have loved to have seen him tackle something else. I and I know, like you and I have had argued back in the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, I remember one of the first movie there episodes you guys really took to task was I shot an arrow, and I I thought that was a great episode. I would have loved to have seen him do that, like something like that. I think he 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 could have really knocked and, out of the park. And that also would have been a different element. That's what I think. That at least say say what we're going to say about these segments. At least they're like you know there are four different flavors of the twilight zone. And I think, you know, your mileage may vary, but I think that they're all like, they're definitely on brand, you know? So I think that works, works for that's favor, but here, let me, uh, and also I'll say this too. You could see uh, Spielberg flexing his muscles for like coming up with like amazing stories later. This feels like this could have been an amazing stories episode with how like hopeful it is. And if you go and look at, um, like ghost train, the pilot that, you know, that's, um, that has this kind of all over it. And, you know, even when we covered, um, Oh, what was the one Terry, the one with the, the bomber pilot, um, I, I'm, I'm, I forget I the name of that. Yeah, like the last, remember. it wasn't called the last flight, whatever it was. Anyway, there's that sense of hope there too. Like you can tell, right? Like it's just, 
this is so the train episode of Amazing Stories. I'm sorry, I just cut you off. Yes, like even that is a like if that had been slotted in here, you know, obviously he does that what three or four years later, but still, I think it would have been much better than what he does with Kick the Can. That's that's, fair. that's all. So, all right, Terry, do you have anything else about the segment before I read the the part of the novel that just made me just wonder what the hell was going on with life? Well, the uh, one the one thing I want uh, you said you were getting the feels when you were watching that one part with the children and then you, yeah. you know Mr. Bloom was telling them to play an app. The one that actually got me is when Leo looks to Mr. Angus or Age, yeah, Mr. Aggie, yeah, yeah, Mr. Aggie, and he's like, "Take me with you, yeah. take me." I was like. Man, that's like a real bummer because he he finally realizes no, there is magic here, and this is this is the guy he was talking to earlier about not like that works. And if that would have been the end of the segment, I didn't need Scatman Crothers walking out and seeing Leo kicking the can, and and then uh, Scatman looking directly at the camera and be like, he'll get it. I'm like, Dad, just go away. Yeah, like, don't that, break the fourth yeah. wall. No, yeah. it just, it's not on brand for the rest like, of the movie. Yeah, it just that felt weird to me there, but no, like like Bill Quinn. His, his him selling like to take me with you, oh, oh, the, the, you know. And I'll put this to you, Steve. Like that that is very that mirrors very much the episode. Whenever the one guy that didn't go out and play sees them all be kids and they're all leaving, and he's like, "Can I can I do this now?" And he's like, "No, like you missed your chance." Like I think that still has the same point, but yeah, like there there's there's small bits in this, but it's not there. There's this big gauze wrapping around it that's not. Um, I don't know. Not gauze is not the right thing. It's the ribbon candy. You know, it's the, like whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a pretty big sweet tooth, but even for me, this was a little too saccharine. Fair That's enough. all. So, okay. And so Robert Block uh, rewriting the short, like the, the, the story that, you know, George Clayton Johnson did years ago. The, 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 this one is structurally different than the rest of them, but I, and I won't get into all like the setup. Uh, but Mrs. Dempsey, she was the one that had the cat. Um, and she called the cat Mickey. I don't know if they ever said that in the, the, the episode or the segment or not. And she also talked about how she had a husband named Jack Dempsey, you know, not the boxer. Right. So there's a segment before they all wake up where, uh, Robert Block writes about how each of them, as they're falling asleep, what, like they're dreaming about or what they're thinking about here. This is a standalone paragraph. You guys ready? All right. In the woman's dormitory, Ms. Dempsey was already sleeping with Mickey curled up beside her pillow. Uh, in her dream, the white cat suddenly turned into her husband, Jack, and Ms. Dempsey wasted no time. They began to make love. Somewhere along the line, Jack Dempsey turned into Clark Gable, but Ms. Dempsey didn't mind. She wrote right on making love, dot, dot, dot. What <laughs> the hell? <laughs> It's yeah, not every uh, Twilight Zone that you get some bestiality in there. <laughs> so how do you think Steve, uh, Steve Spielberg would have handled the um, compilation with a cat sequence, the dream <laughs> sequence in this? Is that is that the edge you're looking for, Steve? Is that what you wanted? Did this guy write Animorphs as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert Block, author of Psycho and Animorphs. No, like... <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> like, so could have like, done without that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's weird because like in, in the first segment in timeout, whenever, um, the guy like, you know, like fondles the waitress, like, which we see in the movie, he goes into a little more detail about like, you know, her bra size. I'm like, I was like, well, Robert, Black, that's weird. Whatever. And then we get into tear 20,000 feet and he makes a comment about some of the, the, um, the flight attendants. I'm like, you know, just calm down. And then in a, it's a good life. Um, which we'll talk about in a second. There's a whole beginning of the story that's not even in the movie, and he still makes a reference to someone being attractive with like big bosoms. I'm like, Robert Block, like what are you, like what are you doing? And then I'm like, he can't possibly fit 
a sex bit into the old person home, which oh. they talk about it. It's, it's a joke, right? I get it. But it's like, there's no way he could actually go and make that weird. Right. And I'm like, Oh, well, you know what? He made it weird. All four segments. I don't know why that had to happen, but there you go. People that's now burdened to your head. I, I do wonder if, you know, you, you're somebody who's adapting, you know, a screenplay into a novel, um, you know, you, you probably get to pick and choose the things that you can explore, but also there is probably a piece of you that's like, yeah, I got to find a way to fill this. You know, I've got to find a way to fill, you know, 30 pages of a, you know, let's say 10 page script or something along those lines. Um, you know, I don't know what the breakdown is between the two. So I imagine you probably will go to different places with what the material is. And like you said, I don't know if this was one that he was shown or not, but he was, he clearly had a, an idea where he was like, yeah, I'm just going to go into these weird places. I, just, I would believe he had like a cork board with like all four titles and like bullet points. And then like him, like writing another note, like sex with cat question mark and is putting it on the board, but not sure where he was going to put that in the movie. <laughs> like he know? kept moving it from like, does John Lithgow on the plane? No, yeah, that like, doesn't no, work. It's, weird. <laughs> it's like, does, I mean, does, does the wing walker become a cat? I don't, but just, we've got to get the cat well, bit in here. One somewhere. of the characters listed here is M- Mr. Gray Panther. So I don't know if that, <laughs> I, what is that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great, one yeah, of the characters yeah. from the segment. Apparently, yeah. uh, Mr. Gray Panther was my AOL scream name. In yeah. So, all right, there we go. So let's, let's move on from kick the can. Let's kick that one down the road and let's get on to, to segment three here. So segment three, it's a good life. Uh, another adaptation from the original series uh, this one's directed by Joe Dante. Uh, uh, the writer here is uh, Jeremy Bixby. Uh, yes and no. Uh, it is the the story was by Jerome Bixby, the short story Jerome. that the episode was based upon. Uh, I, Matt, I'm sorry, Serling wrote the episode originally, the TV one. This is actually the screenplay was written by Matheson, Richard okay. Matheson. So we actually get yeah, we I get some, there was going to be we, a we get some Twilight this. Zone um, royalty in here to kind of you know help help uh, you know steer this a little bit. Yeah, I knew there was something wrong about that. I was like, I just, I couldn't find the extra notes to back my, uh, my uh, theories up. So <laughs> you, you had this big cork board and you're like sex with cat. Like, no, 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 that's not what I, yeah, anyway. Uh, so anyway, continue. What do we, who do we have in this segment? So uh, here we have uh, our cast, uh, Kathleen Gilgan, uh, uh, Gil- Quin- Quinlan, Quinlan. Sorry. Yeah, of course I can't read. Uh, she plays Helen Foley. Yeah. Kathleen Gilligan. Yeah. And then uh, Jeremy Filch, Filch. I, I think it's Jeremy uh, Licht. Licht. Yeah. Okay. You know what? So okay, I, we got I, I Jeremy Licht as Anthony. Kev, plays, Kevin McCarthy as Uncle Walt. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Berry as mother. William Shallert as the father. Nancy Cartwright as Ethel. Dick Miller as Dick Miller, being Dick Miller and everything. Dick Miller. Uh, yeah. Sherry Curie uh, as Sarah, and I'll I'll mention why I'll bring her up in a minute. And then Bill Mooney as also is in this as well. So. Um, Real quick, uh, Kathleen Quinlan, like I thought she was real recognizable. Um, she did get nominated for an Oscar for Apollo 13. Uh, she was in, and Steve, I didn't, cause I know you and I haven't watched this, but she was in the Hulu, uh, series, uh, the runaways, the Marvel series. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, I don't know if you guys have anything else for her. Um, she's in the doors and she's in a breakdown uh, and the Hills have eyes remake. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Licht. That's all I really got. He was in the Hogan family, but whatever. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. 
Um, he was in the, the episode long live Walter Jameson from season one, I believe of the original series, amazing episode. And he was also, um, the jerk TV station owner in UHF, which is where I first remember him from. I love, I, he's also in the original invasion of the body snatchers, yeah, but he's in the howling as well. Yeah. I love Kevin McCarthy along with Dick Miller. Dick Miller's go. in the howling as well. Um, Patricia Berry as the mother. Um, it took me a minute until I looked back through her credits, Terry. I was kicking myself for not noticing this. She was in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. She was in a season four episode, I Dream of a Genie, which we was terrible. Uh, but she was Leela in The Chaser from season one. One of my favorite episodes of season one. She is the the the, the apple of the guy's eye. He's the one that puts gives her the the love potion. And, you know, and it's like, I was like, yeah, it's like, she looks familiar. And it's like, because I had a crush on her then. And yeah, that's why. Um, William Shatler uh, in the 80s episode of The Twilight Zone. Nancy Cartwright. You guys have never heard of her, right? I who Nancy Cartwright. I, I'm not sure who that is. I'm sorry. Are you okay, Steve? Are you joking? Oh no! Yes, of course. I'm yeah, joking. Terry. Yeah, <laughs> I just found out. <laughs> Ter- Terry wasn't joking. I really didn't know. <laughs> Don't have a cow, Terry. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, she's the voice of Bart Simpson. So yeah, and then uh, Dick Miller just throw a dart. He's in everything. It was great to see him, though. I love I, I love Dick Miller. He's a Joe Dante favorite, so yeah. he will often pop up in Joe Dante films. And uh, I, I I think uh, when he passed, I even talked about him on Invasion. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, my brain got stuck, and I could only talk about Gremlins and Chopping Mall, which <laughs> why not? <laughs> you know, yeah. combination there. Sure. But uh, um, yeah, and Sherry Curie, she is Sarah, the, the 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 older sister that's up in the room watching cartoons, right? Um, I, I didn't know this, but this is, this is also funny. She was the lead singer of the band, the runaways, uh, that had, oh, um, no kidding yeah, with, the, with, uh, Lita Ford and, uh, yeah. Uh, the shoot, my brain's blanking now, Joan but Jet. yes. Yeah. yeah. So knowing what we know about her when we see her face, it's funny that she's the lead singer of a band. Um, and then, but also I thought, I thought it was just funny cause I'm like, Oh, Marvel's the runaways. Oh, the actual band, the runaways. Yeah. She's, right. she does. Uh, she still does music. Um, yeah. she's had some solo gigs come through town. Yeah. And, and Bill Moomy, he was the original Anthony and the original episode of it's a good life. So, um, which is, you know, we talked about season three, episode eight. Uh, so Steve, we, you know, you were on to talk about that originally. Um, I guess we'll just, uh, I don't know. I'll let, I'll let you talk, tell everybody what this one is. Cause this one is, it's, it's, it's it's a fair bit different than the original episode. You want me to go through the actual description of the episode? Sure, just get, we can do the cliff's notes and then we can get we can dig in. Unless you have other notes about some of the cast. No, no, I just I don't have the uh, the IMDb up to call out character names, so I wasn't. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I can. I, I yeah. If you if you want to just uh, sure. give out. Don't like, wish me to the names. cornfield. Fine, that's fine. So I mean, it starts with Kathleen Quinlan uh, going into a small diner that is uh, run by Dick Miller. Um, and dur- while she's there, she sees a young boy playing, I believe it's Tempest. Yeah, am, it's I, Tempest. am I wrong on that? No, it's Tempest. All right. Um, and uh, while she's eating her lunch, uh, there's some younger ruffians or older ruffians who are probably in their 20s uh, going on about a game of some sort. I don't remember if it's football match. or Oh, well, yeah, there you go. It was, it was boxing or football. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, they are going on and on about uh, uh, the match itself. And um, at one point, one of the guys gets up and threatens uh, the young boy. 
Um, not Bill Mumia, oddly enough. Uh, Bill Mumia, well, as you mentioned, is from the original yeah, episode. Bill Mumia knows what's up. He's not going to go threaten that kid. Because <laughs> <laughs> every time um, Anthony bangs the arcade machine, the, the TV flashes, and that's affecting right. him watching the game. Yeah. And I don't know if that point is supposed to be a subtle nod to that they know what's going on with him, because in the original episode, the whole town is affected. I don't get that vibe here. I get the vibe here that it's just people he brings home with him that are aware of his powers, but I could be wrong. Um, that said, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the lady, Kathleen Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, Kathleen, <laughs> Kennedy, this is, this is, I was not expected to be no, called it's, it's, up. No, to it's give, fine. Uh, I just, you know, uh, she, she, uh, eventually intervenes because the, the one oaf is trying to attack the kid and she is like, you can't do that. And, um, you know, and they, they sit back down and there's also that brief bit, whatever Dick Miller's hitting on her and the, the, the line cooks like, Hey, it's your wife on the phone. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, Catherine Quinlan's like, you should go talk to your wife. And he's like, yeah, okay, great. Anyway, I, um, I love Dick Miller, but man, was she out of his league. Boy, oh boy, is she out of yeah, yeah. Right. I uh, like what she's asking for directions. Yes, though. There's uh, three name drops here. Yes. So that, uh, to go t- directly back to the original series, so they ask where she comes from, and I think it's Hartford. No, she said Homewood. Homewood. Yeah. And then she has to, when asking Dick Miller, he said that you have to go past Cliffordville. No, she's trying to get to Cliffordville, cool. and then she she needs to take a left on Beaumont, which Beaumont. is a reference to yeah, Charles no. Beaumont, which in the in the short story, it was actually, um, uh, that was it they did. It was Willoughby, Cliffordville, and, and um, oh, the other one I just said, because um, Homestead. Uh, but yeah, this is funny that they actually added Beaumont and I think that was Matheson making sure Beaumont's name got said. And I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. I like, I like all those little name drops there. Yeah. It's, it's it, especially like going through the series now and hearing those kinds of things. You're like, Oh, that makes a hell of a lot more sense now. Yeah. So she like leaves the cafe to go try to figure out what she's doing. Cause she's in the process of just moving. Like we kind of know that she's in like this midlife, not midlife, but she's making decisions. Right. And I love the sudden and amazing violent, uh, Anthony on the bike, just, just running in the back of her car. Like, like, it, you know, it's one thing where if you're backing up and a kid's like, like riding the bike behind you and you're like, Oh no, I didn't mean to hit you. It looked like he was like, I got a beeline for the back of this car, which I mean, we kind of know that he did, but the way they shot that, I was like, they, they just killed that kid. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah it, it looks like there was a real crash there. <laughs> yeah. It looked like, um, something out of Pee Wee's big adventure, like when he's leaving <laughs> the, the diner. Um, but yeah, she, uh, it's like, oh, your bike's busted. He's like, just take me home, whatever. And that's where they, they, uh, drive up, um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and did you guys notice the little, little edge of a cornfield? There was a little bit of a cornfield as you're driving before you see the house. I don't, did you see it Terry or Steve? Uh, did you see a bit of a cornfield? I saw a little bit of one. I didn't see it. Yeah. I noticed it. Yeah. Yeah. So we get to this house, which is like, it's, you know, doesn't, it doesn't look like it belongs there. And I love the visual and it's not, it's not, um, lingered upon so it's kind of one of those things that just kind of sticks in the edges of your mind is how all the other cars are parked there are dusty that's a cool that's a cool touch yeah there's like six seven cars just scattered around it look pretty look pretty rough there's a squirrel like eating its dinner on top of one or two <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but that's a week into the house and like uh you know something that like the more i try to to get into watching things and enjoy things i, I get really sucked into like art style and like detail. And you could tell like Joe Dante was like, well, if we're going to get crazy now, we're going to start getting crazy because this house, it doesn't look like it would be that dissimilar from one that would be in who frame Roger rabbit. Like 
and it, the way it's just kind of just slightly overly large in the downstairs areas with everything and the way it's exaggerated. And I love that because of the way it's also kind of lit. It doesn't, it's not lit like a house. It's almost like, I want to say it's lit like a, like a, like a sitcom at times. Yeah. You know? it, it works out really well for Joe Dante too. Cause he used to want to be an illustrator when he was a kid. So he, he used to do a lot of drawings and that, but he found out it was really difficult to get into the industry of being a comic book artist and an illustrator. So mm. I think that his aesthetic actually works really well for his background in that, like in art. Yeah. And so, um, I agree. And so, so Steve, I know you do the, the artist stuff and you know, you make the comic books and things. So what do you, what do you think about this, uh, this look coming in? Cause it's, it's, it's unlike anything else in the movie to this point. It's interesting. And I feel like Dante is all over this segment. Like if you just showed me this, uh, without, you know, the other pieces around it and I had to guess, I'm not saying that I would immediately go to Joe Dante, but I feel like um, my experience with him, it's very reflective of what we know of him. I mean, uh, his version of this story, I feel like, is very much – and you can make the argument that, yes, it's very much in the original Gremlins. But like when you get to Gremlins 2, Gremlins 2 is where he's like, I just want to make this sequel, and I, I want it to just be a big cartoon. Um, and that's what this feels like to me. Um I think that uh, it also goes to our previous discussions about the film Explorers, where you felt that that wasn't successful. I feel like there's a little bit of that in this here, too, um, particularly his obsession with um, one-liners and jokes and and, and sort of that over-the-top um, zaniness. I, I don't want to say, you know, this is... There are effects in here that are like, wow, they're doing this pre the mask yeah. and the Jim Carrey mask where I'm like, wow, that's really impressive doing it here. But I feel like the cartoonish niche of it uh, does pull away slightly from the drama of it, which I think within the first Gremlins works ridiculously well. Like I, I don't know that I can quantify why. Um, well, you also get you get longer time to set up the regular right before it goes that way. This, you know, you got what twenty minutes or so in this movie, mm -hmm. and like so, you got to hit the ground running. So, I I can see what you're saying. I will say that no matter how much the segment bothers me, still from that little kid part of my brain, nothing in the segment is 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 as disturbing as that kid in Explorer sitting in the high chair with um, that paper mask on, just eating just mush. Ugh, that's a terrifying <laughs> image and it's disgusting. I don't so like if it. If it's just been like 25 minutes of that, you'd have been horrified. I would have just, you, the, my soul would have left my body. I just, I, you know, it, with that in mind, you know, I think that uh, going back to the original episode, uh, I feel like some of the punches pulled out of this um, just because of the cartoonish of cartoonishness of it. I, I can't say that word apparently. Um, for instance, in, in the original episode, there's this horrible like beat that's just will stop you cold when you're watching it. Where um, not only does the little boy uh, played by Bill Mooney um, do something awful to a dog that we see off that we don't see, it's off screen. We just hear its you know response, and then he, he's told to wish it into the cornfield. But also, he says, "I remember that guy. I made him go on fire." There is nothing in this that is that horrifying, and I realize that it, it is 
tough to be like, okay, well, I'm giving you a visual representation as opposed to letting you do it with your imagination. Because the craziest thing that we get in the original episode is the shadow of the, the you know, jack-in-the-box Jack puppet. Yeah. Um, but it, it's one of those things where I'm like, I normally love Joe Dante. I don't know that he really hits the mark with this particular segment. Um, but his hands are definitely all over it. And I, I, I can definitely see a straight delineation between this gremlins gremlins two, and even explorers. Okay. So yeah, I like, I just also want to mention too, like we didn't even talk about the upstairs, how it shifts to black and white and how like that. I don't know if that's a deliberate callback to the original series, but if it is that works for me, I love the, the way the light, like the the shafts of light in the hallway and just how like, it's just, he finds these elements in here that like, just there's the family portrait with all the faces missing. Like there's just the stuff in there that is, it's very, um, it with having the soundtrack be a constant running of like Looney Tunes cartoons with all that, you know, that music and that bombasticness it, it to me, it's very off putting. Uh, and I, you know, that I forgot about the upstairs segment, the part of it, like the, the color pattern, I guess, cause as a kid, I was already like, my brain was already terrified of something. I don't know, but, um, I forgot about that. I like that. Um, I like how, oh, uh, the family, I like that they look like they're just out of sorts, but they're, they're the distorted version of the sitcom family. Like I, I like how the moment, like they just see them just like checked out and watching cartoons. No, Anthony comes home, they all perk up and it's like that, that crazy fake nice. Like that's why Kevin McCarthy in this segment just shines. I love his uncle Walt. Cause he's just so like run over. <laughs> like I, I like his performance here. Everybody here is great in terms of like them, like everybody, like the, the big difference in this segment too, than, than what we're talking about the original episode is that there's no indication here that Anthony can read thoughts until the very, very end or whatever it was like. So you can't tell if somebody's thinking happy thoughts or not. It's only what people are telling him. And I think that was a smart move because in the original episode, if you can't get anywhere near the kid without thinking a happy thought, like there, you can't function, which I mean, this is a different type of prison. And I think, I think there's a slight difference there, but I think it's worth noting. So Terry, you have any def definitely elements of fear here that's instilled into the entire family. So they're trying to keep them happy as they meet Helen. They, they're all like super jolly to meet her and that. And when they, which I, I think this is kind of fun too. When she goes upstairs and is led, uh, to, you know, to check out the upstairs and everything, they just ransack her purse. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, just grabbing a cigarette, smoking them like crazy. I love, I love the argument of like, give me the lighter, I'll give you a cigarette. No, no, no. Give me a cigarette, I'll give you a lighter. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't work <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, and Uncle Walt looking at the pictures like, I remember the beach. Like, <laughs> it's like, so it really, it drives home the fact that these guys have no sense of freedom anymore. Yeah. Like even to like do the, like the, the mom, she's sitting there putting the makeup on and everything. Just, and she, dab, just dumping it on and just something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like, that's all. That's all crazy. Right? But it also that's another thing too. We don't get to see a lot of in the original episode is that like like they don't get to really break character a whole lot because Anthony can hear everything, right? And this it's like like you get to see like oh this is like we know the family's acting weird and now we see more of it, which I think. I think it's an interesting story beat. Um, you know, I don't know if I, whether or not that helps the, like, you know, the product or not. I do like that. You get to see them not just constantly like up, like they're actually kind of themselves a little bit. Um, so yeah, but when we get back down to, um, having dinner, cause it's his birthday dinner, right? Uh, Steve, I'm going to ask you, um, about, um, the selection 
for the meal. Um, it was peanut butter on a burger, a hamburger, <laughs> fudge stripe cookies, a candy apple, potato chips, and ice cream. So what night of the week do you have that at your house? I mean, every night is that <laughs> night. Um, I put my notes I, here. I, I was like, AKA Steve Ditter. That's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming like over for dinner when sometime. you asked me to give like a summation of the episode, I was like, oh, I'm not prepared. I can't do this. This is your show. But you asked me about fast food being, or not fast food, but garbage food being uh, dinner. I'm like, I've got an answer ready and then waited to go. <laughs> so is that like, so how how is peanut butter on a burger? I've never tried it. <laughs> it's quite good. It, it, it's very good. Oh, I, the peanut butter is what makes it. I, uh, years ago, uh, my uh, my one friend uh, from college was he was visiting me. We went back to to my home for a minute, and my mom had just made um, hot dogs. And she offered, you know, hot dogs were having them. And she asked him if he wanted chili and he misunderstood her. And he was like, what? It's like, no, I don't want jelly on my hot dog. <laughs> and so, um, so that was always a joke about like, I go over to visit him. Like, hey, you want some, want some jelly on the hot dog? So I feel like you got, if you're going to do a peanut butter burger, you have to have a jelly hot dog. Jelly dog. Yeah, yeah, you got to have a jelly dog. So I feel I like you should be paired with the uh, Twinkie hot dog. Yeah, the Twinkie wiener sandwich from UHF. That's like Kevin McCarthy was just sneaking them on set, right? Like, hey, I've had a donut burger, and that's amazing. I, I have had the glazed donut. Well, they call it the Luther at the one place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, burgers donut, to beer. Donut yeah. burgers are amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that. We're all three like we're on we're on board for donut burgers, but get that peanut butter away. <laughs> and you know. Instead of instead of the next Kmart sandwich, maybe <laughs> yeah. the donut peanut butter burger. <laughs> so so yeah, I also like um like the bit whenever he like well first we have the mother like saying you know he's like well prepare go get dinner and then she's like well where is dinner like. That to me, I mean, it's not the same thing as I made that man go on fire, but it was also, I think that really is like, they're at the mercy of him and they don't, they can't function until he says something is reality because it will not be. Well, we know? didn't drive home with maybe the repercussions could be here because they we see the, uh, his sister, Sarah, upstairs watching the cartoons and she has no mouth. Yeah. Uh, that is like, okay, so Anthony has... The reveal of that, though, is great. How the camera just tips up and you as the audience know, okay, this is already weird to begin with. That is, that is terrifying. Yeah. You were talking I about certain... she was in the Matrix. I'm sorry. Oops. Yeah, she's in the Matrix, yeah. I, j- there were certain things that you were saying that burned images into your mind. That was definitely one that stuck with me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one that is coming up later. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, with the meal and then we get the whole thing of where we, uh, we have the, the main character, uh, Helen being like, hey, you, you can't eat garbage all the time. And Anthony's like, Hey, why didn't people tell me that? And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. Anthony, you can't eat garbage all the time, you know, whatever. Uh, but I also like the voraciousness, voraciousness of when they start eating. Cause it's like, you don't know the last time they ate because they only eat when Anthony provides food for them, you know? So it's like, there's a lot of other questions going on with all this, but anyway, uh, that's whenever he's like, it's my birthday. And then we have, uh, Ethel being like, it's your birthday again with presents. And it's like, there's this, like also credit to them finding the, the, the right cartoon clips to play with all of this. Cause the dialogue in the cartoons fits very, very well with everything going on. And that's when we get like, um, him forcing, uh, uncle, you know, Uncle Walter, um, Uncle Walter Jameson. Um, maybe that's why they call him Walt. Yeah, there you go. Um, never put that together until right now. I'm a bad Twilight Zone person. When they make him do the hat trick, right? Which that also that, that moment of like, well, where's the hat at? He's like, it's on the TV. And it's like, it was not there until a minute ago. It's like, ugh. 
But the, the, the rabbit in the hat thing, when he goes and pulls the first rabbit out, it's real. Like the look on his face when he sticks his hand in that hat is pure terror. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what am I going to grab in here? It's like, just, just reach in the garbage disposal. I won't turn it on this time. You know, like, but then when he pulls, like when the, the, the second rabbit comes out, Steve, again, I was like five or six years old probably watching this for the first time because my mom, I'm sure she got on a VHS, you know, we'd watch this. You can't tell me that that rabbit monster would not scare the living rabbit poop out of you as a kid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's effective. My God, I, I it's think that, like every- Everything's done well technically here. I, I just feel like the subtleties of the 60s show, like that was, I shouldn't say the show, the episode yeah. of that, you know, It's a Good Life. Um, I think that uh, it worked in the favor of it, where it's like, it, he, there's always the argument of, you know, show don't tell, or, yeah. or um, you know, <laughs> if you're not going to be, if you can't show the audience, you know, at least make an impression upon them. And I think that with this, you know, I feel like it's just, what we imagine is far scarier than than what we're presented with because it's it's amazing technically. Don't get me wrong; I think it's uh, ahead of its time. I mentioned the mask, which wouldn't come for like another eleven years after this. I think that's ninety four, but that's as close as you're going to get to like live cartoon characters being done uh, in film at that point. I mean, other than Howard the Duck, and yeah. that is horrifying. So. And we, and we can thank Rob Boutine for that because he worked on this segment. Oh, so well, I'm not I sure exactly how much of it he did, but he, this was the segment that Rob Boutine worked but that on. Would, I would, yeah, throw a dart. I'm sure you could figure out a couple things he did. Yeah, but, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, like that's not even the part that scared me the most as a kid. It still bothers me now. Is that um, after that happens, whenever they, he finds then Anthony finds the little note saying, "Hey, you know, basically he's a monster. Let's, you know, like." Trying to tell help us. Yeah, tell Helen like what's up, right? I also like that the family immediately turns on each other and they're all like, no, 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 her. They all point at Ethel. <laughs> like that. But then he was like, it's time to basically go to cartoon land. And I put in my notes here and Terry, you'll appreciate this now. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course, you know, Nancy Cartwright's going to end up in cartoon land because she's been in it for 30 years now for being Bart Simpson. So yeah. this is how she ends up there. But that sequence with those cartoons that were made for this, that animation sequence, again, as a kid, I like there's cartoon violence, which we saw throughout like the other segments here in terms of like the cartoons being shown, but this got like with that wolf, like with the blood on the teeth and like the chasing and like the gulping down, like that scared the shit out of me as a kid. Cause cartoons never felt dangerous to me and seeing it. And that effect now is like, you know, you know, you're again, that's it, there's way better stuff in this, this segment, but that whole thing when the the dragon gulps and just kills her and it just like stares at you. It's just like, I, my, it still bothers me. It, that is, that's the flash burn in my mind is that part of this movie. And then also like the, the Tasmanian, whatever the hell that is that's showing up next. Ugh, <laughs> that just disturbs me still. And I, I don't have a good reason why other than I was a little kid. It scared the life out of me and I've never forgotten it. I thought it was badass. Even watching it now, I still think it's cool. It just It's so reminiscent of Rob Zombie's artwork and that. So he must have been taking notes when he saw this when he was younger too. But uh, yeah, yeah, and then like you were saying, um, he gets even more pissed off now. And then the TV splits down the middle. Yeah. And this thing comes spinning out like the Tasmanian Devil. And we see like it's slow down and it's this horrifying like amalgamation of what reality could be 
of a, a cartoon character. Yeah, it's just it takes so long to be shown for what it is. That also scared me as a little kid. I yeah. guess this is my therapy episode, guys. Thank you for coming on for for this. But like, because it took forever. Because you know, so whatever's inside is not right. And then even though when you see it now, it's a, it's a perfectly stationary figure with a tongue that just flaps. But. Ugh. Like it still bothers me, yeah. and then it changes forms uh, while it's like uh, I guess intimidating them, and it just it looks even creepier in the middle sequence there. And I'm like, what is it going to do now? And it's yeah. like pointing at them and the sticking eyes are tongue inflating. Out. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's freaky. So thank you, Rabu team, for doing it again. <laughs> you know, after the thing, you go on to this and you even creep the shit out of us even more. So yeah, so yeah, so yeah, that's I mean, I Steve, I agree with you that. You know, a lot of times less is more. I could also see them saying, this is this is being to be played in a movie theater. We're going to have the big screen and the loud sound. Like, let, let's, let's scare them. And the Twilight Zone, to me, hasn't always been about, like, just straight up scaring you. It's been about, like, unnerving you, upsetting you, and making you think. This, I mean, Terror at 20,000 Feet, the actual episode is very unnerving, but when you have the, the, the Charmin bear outside walking up to the window <laughs> and that it's like, that's not as scary as they meant it. You know, it's supposed to be scarier. And I think they course corrected correctly in the next segment. But like, I think this was supposed to be the moment where it's like, this is what this is going to get people. Cause th- this is, this is supposed to be like, you're not safe. This is, this was the moment to, promised in the very beginning when Dan Aykroyd was full of cat noises and pounced on, uh, you know, um, Albert Brooks. That's, that's what I think. But I, I agree with you. I just, I think that they're being like, Hey, this is a motion picture. We, we can go bigger. I, I agree with that. And I actually, you know, the one thing that I think that works in the favor of this is, is I actually think the ending stronger where she decides to, uh, try and harness the kid's power and make a deal with him. I think that that's actually strong because the way the episode ends, it's just like, Hey, I turned that guy into a giant Jack in the box and now it's snowing outside and I'm ruining the crops and everybody's just left with this horror of like, well, there's no end to this. Um, whereas with this, you know, she's like, you know, what did you do with the other people? And he's like, well, I just let him go. Uh, and she's like, okay, well, let's let's work together. Let's figure out how to harness your power, which I never would have expected. Like that that was the ending of this. Um, in as far as like in comparison to the the original segments, I think that works the best. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. Because I mean, you're right. Because the original one was ending on such a like a much more bleak note, and this one is the hope with like the flowers like growing alongside and and all the stuff there, um, and. So in the novelization, when Robert Block was like, well, you know, I already told you guys about the cat thing. Uh, but with this, the, the whole the whole book, the whole sorry, the story of this, there's like a like our character of Helen is actually like leaving town because her mother had passed away. And um, all that was left now was her like um, like gold digging sister who who got by our looks, which Block described, you know, thusly, he, uh, not thusly, he. You know, he had to go and make some womanly shaped comments about her. But the whole thing was that Helen was a teacher, which I don't think we really got that. Did they ever say she was a teacher in the segment? I don't remember them saying that she was a teacher, but she was definitely moving from one space to another because yeah. she had a lot of furniture yeah. and belongings in the back of the car. So with this, she didn't she didn't feel like she even wanted to be a teacher anymore. She was as she was just heading a direction. She wanted to like she wanted to start learning as you know, and then so what what this kind of like even gets to at the end of the short story is that she is actually like, she can now 
guide this 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 thing this kid but also learn as well so it leaves them both like getting something they both needed you know and it's like and I, it doesn't it doesn't change like the ending of this segment it's just there's a little bit more context there where it's like you can see her motivations because she was a teacher. Yeah. And that's also why supposedly in the bar, sorry, the diner, she stood up like her instincts kicked in when someone was being a dick to a kid. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think the, the hopeful ending, I think, you know, after just seeing all the craziness of what just happened, I think you needed that, you know? So especially with what we were about to get to next, you know? So uh, any other notes about um, it's a good life? Anybody, anything else? I think we, okay. I think we can put a pin in that one as well. So. Yeah. All right. I'm just uh, we're going to finish our peanut butter burgers and move on to uh, Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet. So, yeah. so segment four. So our last story. Um, this one is directed by George Miller, um, which you were talking about earlier. He yeah, did of, uh, Mad uh, Max and Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Steve and I both love that movie. Uh, so, and this one was written by none other than Richard Matheson. Uh, officially, Richard Matheson, <laughs> as for yeah. what I could find. And then, so our, our main cast member here, and the one we're following the story through, is uh, John Lithgow playing John Valentine. And so um, there we have some. I don't know if you wanted to dive into any of the other characters here. I have a couple, and I have one here. It's going to blow Steve's mind. And let, so, so uh, Abby uh, Abby Lane is the senior flight attendant. I don't know her from anything. Just that she's a character in this. Wanted to mention it. Donna Dixon is the junior flight attendant, uh, married to Dan Aykroyd. So there you go. And, you know. They're, they're like this is not the only movie they've been in together. They, they met on Doctor Detroit, and then they're in this as well. But uh, and she was also Donna Dixon was a voice of one of the oh one of the other women in the very last episode of season two. Uh, the Jordan Peele produced stuff you might also like. And she's the dream woman from Wayne's World. Oh, that's right. Okay, there we go. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I read about her just recently when you go. guys were talking about Wayne's World yeah, yeah. Part 2. But the, the last one I mentioned here is Larry Cedar, who plays the Gremlin, the Wingwalker. Steve, did you look up anything about him? Because if not, I'm going to blow your mind. No, I didn't okay. look anything up. He, my bad. He, no, 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 no. I, I saw this and I was delighted. He is Cornelius Hawthorne from Community. He was Chevy Chase's father. That was like the... Shut up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> right? I, I think that's great because he, he played a couple... You know, He showed up on a couple different episodes of Community. I know he voiced... Uh, himself as the video game one right like uh right. video game version and cornelius is a weirdo and like i i loved uh, uh yeah i i was like that is just i'm so delighted to find out that this guy was the gremlin and cornelius hawthorne i'm delighted that he worked that long like you know i mean that's easily 30 years between those two things <laughs> well considering that um leonard the guy who played Leonard in Community was in a season five episode of the original series that uh, it's kind of stopwatch. So like that's, you know, there's weird branching here with some of this stuff, but yeah. Um, we recently just talked about this, uh, this story on our season five episode of season, well, the season five episode, when we talked about it and during our recap, it's actually been in like our top lists, the original version of Terror 20,000 feet, um, you know, directed by Richard Donner, all that stuff with this, like, uh, I guess this is the one that it, it 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 sticks the closest to the narrative ideas, but the characterization I think is like way different. Like, um, like I love I love John Lithgow. Um, my God, I, I guess I guess the direction was George Miller said start at a ten and keep going up from there, and that's that's what I get from him this entire time. Like, uh, I you guys can try. I, I think that's yeah. a good way to summarize it. Um, it is vastly different from how uh you know. 
William Shatner plays the character in the the original uh, adaptation, but I, apparently they also wanted to try to get William uh, uh, William Shatner to play in this role, but because of other scheduling conflicts, he couldn't be a part of it. It would have been it would have been funny, but I'm I'm glad that we got somebody else. Yeah, yeah, and I think this. I think this works. I think this like shows like what panic really can be, and especially since the weather is a huge factor in how like everybody's acting on this plane. I mean, because it gets a little wild. <laughs> so yeah, I can I can understand like what maybe even post post uh, past drama can do for somebody, and like how yeah maybe, PTSD and all like yeah stuff. exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's the there's that's, the that's acronym. The, those are the words we're using. So uh, so Steve, so like um, I know you'd watched the 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 episode recently and saw this. Like like I uh, I think. Um, not not that this is an improvement in every single way, because I do think that some more of the the subtlety of of Shatner's character in the original, where you know the plane is relatively calm with well, meaning with him in it. Here, it's like you got John Lithgow being like a lunatic from the jump. But uh, in terms of the creature and the threat, like I uh, this is this this work is still cool and it still really holds up for me. So I know you're about the monster. So what do you think of this? So uh, I want to answer your question, but I want to mention this first. Mm -hmm. Um, So watching it, uh, my wife was watching it, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm like, I don't think that Shatner goes out the window with the gun uh, because I hadn't seen that episode in a long time. So, like, as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, I'm like, this is interesting the way it goes. And then I revisited the episode. I'm like, oh, this is beat for beat almost exactly the same i'm like the the you know the the tension's heightened uh obviously the drama of it's heightened uh you've got john lithgow putting in an amazing performance you've got um all these cool special effects people uh choreographing that uh that wing walker if you will um and i i also read that uh some of the people who were like timing the lights and the way things were supposed to work were off from what Lithgow's, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, not his preparation was, but f- for what he'd practiced. Um, but that also added to his craziness when things didn't go as they were supposed to. Um, and I think it comes through in his performance, but I was completely astounded. I'm like, Oh my God, this is literally beat for beat. I don't know why I had it in my head that the Shatner story ended with it. It didn't in my brain, it ended with them landing and them discovering, you know, the, the issue. But I did not remember him pulling the gun. I did not remember him firing out the window. I thought for sure that was only from the movie. So when I revisited the episode, I was like, oh, I'm completely wrong here. This is kind of nice. Um, that said, yeah, th- there's a gigantic improvement here. I mean, I, it's easy to look back 60 years later and be like, oh, that guy in the carpet suit is, is not great. So I try not to take that you know, look at it, but the wing Walker in this is still incredibly well done. It's, it's stands up with today's stuff. We'll put it that way. It's just even the sequence when it raised its hand to, to draw the lightning down to the engine. That's a, that's a cool look. And, uh, but yeah, like I think that the creature design is much better. It's much more intimidating and effective, which again, I, you know, you, you do what you can at the time you can. And with this, they, have had the ability to do so. And I thought that was cool. Um, I also like that one of the changes here too, is that when um, Valentine saw 
what happened. And the pilot comes over and he was like, he's, and he's telling the pilot, he's like, something's wrong. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, one of your engines is out. And he's like, which one? He's like, you know, he says which one. And the pilot's like, yeah, it went out nine minutes ago. And it's like, like, it, but he says it's because of lightning strike, but th- there's a pause where, um, that you have to suddenly start giving Valentine a little bit of credibility because he, he is like, on edge and upset, but he's saying something that's valid and is valid to the flight at hand, um, which is different than Shatner. Cause I mean, he was still right the entire time, but there was like nothing really like wrong yet with the, um, the flight until the very end when they saw the damages to it. So I think, you know, I think that gives this a little bit more like um, you're, you're cheering for Valentine a little bit more because he's like, he's seeing reality. And I, I like that shuttle change. It was probably like that in the original Matheson short story, or maybe it's something he brought in to update it because, you know, he had time to let it cook. Right. So I'm sure as a writer and a creator, if you get like a second chance to do something, you're probably going to approach it differently. And I think that gives, yeah, it just, it, it was just a nice little character beat. I, I dug that. And if you have a way to amplify the problem, because, you know, as much as, um, Valentine's dealing with these things and that while he's experiencing and going a little crazier, Everybody else around him is getting a little crazy too. And even like you see the couple, they're like basically telling them they each other love each other. Last time we see the uh, the air marshal, he's freaking out, freaking out. Yeah, he's saying prayers while holding a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like everybody's like losing it at this point, and it it's just like I feel like it was it was needed for this, like the way that they amped it up. I, and, yeah. and there is a hell of a lot of turbulence here, man. I, I don't know. I'd probably be saying my prayer too. I'm not a religious man, but I might find God real quick. Well, Steve, you love flying. How'd you feel about the sequence? <laughs> that was the funny thing. Uh, when we were watching it, my wife's like, oh, and now we find out why you're afraid to fly. I'm like, <laughs> gremlins are not the thing that I'm worried about. I'm worried about being in a plane that I can't control going down. So um, that said, um, there were a couple of things that I thought were smart about this version of it. Um, that I, I so I think starting with Lithgow in the bathroom already fl- freaking out is uh, it already sets the tone of the rest of the piece. I think that that's a, a great um, way to introduce the character. Um, I was kind of torn initially after rewatching the original episode because I was like, oh, you know, I forgot there's all this setup with his wife and like, oh, you know, the doctor says you're not crazy anymore. You can go on a plane. And he's like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, you're fine. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. Um, and, and oddly enough, uh, both of these are, period, are uh, you know, products of their time period because both Shatner and Lithgow light up a cigarette on a plane. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that tells you right then and there when this is set. But I, I, I again, I, I was intrigued by the similarities and the differences. But I, I think, you know, the, the original series episode tries to build at least what are uh, build the character and give us enough knowledge about what he's gone through previously and why not only the walker on the wing being the big thing that it is, but also the fact that, you know, other, everybody else sort of thinks he's cuckoo. Whereas here um, you've got the little girl who's kind of taunting him with the camera. And I love the moment. I still love the moment where uh, it's one of the best moments, moments in the film, in my opinion. And it's a subtle moment. I shouldn't say subtle, but it's just a funny moment because 
he grabs her camera, which for those of you who are uh, under the age of 40, I guess that's Terry too. Um, <laughs> she grabs a, she grabs a, t- a Polaroid uh, camera or he grabs it from the little girl, takes a photo and all he gets is a reflection of himself. <laughs> yeah. But I like, he has to wait a moment to, to see it's a reflection yeah. of himself. It's like, yep. Yeah. That moment's amazing. It made me laugh so hard while rewatching this. It's like, I forgot about that moment. That's amazing. Well, I also but, like a tutor in the middle of the chaos when the little girl's mother fi- finally wakes up. She's like, oh God, what has she done now? Like she assumes yeah. all the chaos going on in the play is because of her daughter. I was like, that's <laughs> that, like, there's one or two beats in here that are pretty good. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, um, I, I keep wanting to say terror at 20,000 feet, but it's nightmare at 20,000 feet. I think that, you know, that is one of the episodes that I think people regard as being the epicenter of uh, not epicenter. I'm sorry. What's the word I'm looking for? The epitome. Is that the right word? It being the like quintessential. Top, yeah. Like yeah. What the, a, what a, the crop of Twilight Zone. And I think that taking that on and doing such a great job with it, the way Miller does here, I think uh, really works. I think that it's, it's just as good you know, if not better technically, obviously, than the original episode. But I think that uh, everything's executed well here. And I I enjoyed every minute of the Lithgow segment. We'll put it that way. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, with Matheson, like when he got the chance to redo this, like he was he was disappointed with the creature design in the original series. Um, and so the the thing he he didn't he didn't necessarily agree with with um, starting uh, Valentine off of a 10 and having him go up to like, you know, 50 with his, like his, you know, intensity and panic. He like, so I feel like he got like a lot of what he wanted, but then he got something that he didn't want. And I just feel like, I, I think the, I think the perfect Matheson version of the story is like somewhere in the middle, <laughs> like, but Hey, whatever. I mean, I think, I think this one succeeds in a lot of, a lot of um, fun ways. And, that is, it's just a creepy visual. I like, um, the thing just seeing the, the, the wing walker just kind of digging through metal guts. And even the bit with the gun at the end, I forgot that basically doesn't he just swipe at it and cut it in half. I think he bites he it. He bites it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause the, the bullets do nothing to him. And it's like, he's going to just go to a toy with Lithgow, uh, until all of a sudden he sees the runway lights and realizes like all the planes descending. I can't, I gotta go. And then how he does the whole, what was like the, the wagging of the finger, like, uh, like Dikembe Mutombo and the Geico commercials, like nah, uh, uh. I, I like, like how he just puts his hand on his face, <laughs> yes. dude. Just leaves a slime on him. Like what the hell? It's so yeah. gross. And to like, show yeah. that this thing actually has, like, it's not just a, a an agent of chaos. Like it is actively aware of what it's doing, which is even more horrifying because it's like it knows it knows what it's doing, and it's just going to go up and be like, yeah, you're you're trying to stop me. I'm going to let you know I could kill you right now. I'm going to face palm you and then tell you, nah, and I'm just going to float away. Like that's a statement, you know, like, yeah, that cool, cool moments. Right. Like, and at the end, when we see the actual damages to the, to the engine, like, I like that. Um, like there's no way that you could be like, well, bird flew in there. Like, <laughs> You can't be like, I don't know. They just hit like, you know, they hit a cloud or something. But it nah. looks like there's like claw marks kind of like beside like the huge gash in it too. Yeah. It's like it looks like it got jacked up by something, not just like a lightning. It didn't, it didn't look like that at all. So everybody's freaking out looking at this thing. And that's when we see, um, uh, John get, uh, put into the ambulance. Yeah. And he's getting hauled away. And all of a sudden the guy, the driver is like, ah, let's turn that crap off. You want to hear some music? And he looks back and it's Dan Aykroyd yes. again. 
I just like that moment of whatever he puts in the midnight special. And the guy's like, I love CCR. And he's like, yeah. He's like, so you want to see something really scary? And that's the end of your movie. It's like, poor lift gal. Like, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to be a second meal for, I like, I, I guess we found out that Dan Aykroyd was being driven to the hospital so he could get, pick up his uh, ambulance chasing job or, you know, whatever to be an EMT. Was I, was I just like having a complete, like, uh, like, vapid moment here did you guys notice that carol soling was on the plane too no i did not notice yeah that. i saw that in the, that's cool the credits here too that she was on the plane so hey there's another uh link to the original series and nice but but hey, that's a nice little wraparound which uh robert block said that he was never told that there was going to be a wraparound story so he didn't write one like <laughs> so it's just the four chapters so he's like at least i got a cat sex moment in there you know whatever um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's it. Like I, you know, I don't really have any other trivia. I mean, like I have, I have what, um, Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Ebert, no, Roger Ebert and, um, and Gene Siskel, what they actually, cause they went through and actually rated each segment. Uh, so I can go through that unless we want to just kind of like go through how we feel about everything. Like give it like, um, what, like favorite, like one, two, three, four, like, would you keep it this way? Or like in terms of like favorite to least favorite? I don't know how you guys want to do that. Well, yeah. Why don't we do that and uh, let Steve go first? Yeah. Before, before we do that, here, let's let's just do this. We'll, we'll call this our twist rating. I, whatever. It's not really a twist 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 rating. That would be if there was, um, you know, strange three way. Uh, it no. It would tell me like, yeah, Steve, just just rate the pieces as you have them. So, I mean, we're not including the opening segment, correct? I would I wouldn't going. include the wraparound. Okay. So um, I do feel like uh, John Lannis's piece is the strongest of the four. Um, I think that it's, I don't want to say the most that feels like the Twilight Zone, but I feel like uh, particularly its relevance to today um, may still be hitting hard with me. Um, and that's, it, it, it's unusual because a lot of these films these days where you're like, oh, this was made 40 years ago. And you're like, you can laugh at like, not laugh, but you can you can certainly see things that are problematic where you're like, oh, well, I, that's crazy. That would have been in a movie in 1983. It, it's more of a like, oh, this could be made now and it would still be true, unfortunately. So um, that said, I, I, I feel like Landis's contribute, contribution here is the best segment. Um, it's right on par with uh, George Miller's. I feel like uh they're they're great bookends to open the film and end the film um and i think we talked about this uh when we talked about tales from the dark side you know i feel like uh that movie the way it's structured like it's it's weird that it was supposed to open with um the uh lover's vow with the um gargoyle mm -hmm. secret and and end with the mummy which I cannot now ever conceive that being the movie. Um, I think that this actually works in its favor where the way they've opened and closed the film. Um, so that, that basically means that, you know, if I'm ranking them, yes, it's, it's um, John Landis and I'm going by director, John Landis, um, George Miller, uh, Joe Dante, and then uh, Spielberg. Hmm. Okay. So that's, it's funny that, so what you're saying is you're going in the order that the movie was actually supposed to be produced in terms of the segments. That's funny. I did not catch that. But yeah. 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 So there you go. So Terry. 
I, I like this film a lot. Um, I, I think there are all pretty strong stories. I, I think the lacking of the four is is probably going to be kick the can for me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, I think there's a lot more for me and like my taste out of the other three stories. Um, I, in order and how I like them, I think that, uh, nightmare in 20,000 feet is the most memorable for me. And I enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, then probably, uh, it's a, it's a good life. It's be next because there's more wacky shit in it. And I, that I really like, um, I think that I, I think kick the can is the worst of the four. And then, you know, so yeah, so time out really is one of those things that I get really uncomfortable watching it. And I don't, I don't know. I, I agree completely with what Steve is saying. It's closer to what probably Serling and the original series would have done, like of how storytelling would have been, and like the you get your, you get what you cut, you, you yeah. pay for, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I, and I and and so uh, yeah, in terms of like um, the the idea and getting louder and louder and louder, I think Time Out is probably still the most important of these. Um, but in terms of like, I, I could just never, never, ever, ever, ever shake how much It's a Good Life bothers me. I just, I, I, I've, I've already admitted, like, I just, whew, even, even knowing, like, I'm like, I'm going to, like, I'm going to be a grown up. I'm in my forties. I don't want to watch this segment. <laughs> you know, like it's just every single time. So it has to be up there too with, I mean, and terror, you know, sorry, terror nightmare at, at 20,000 feet. Um, like that's just, it's just, it's good. Like you can't. Like, I'm glad that this is the way the movie ends because it's like, you know, the, the plane is landing, shit's out of control. Like, this is how you should have ended that movie. And yeah, and I agree that uh, Kick the Can is is the, the lesser of the four. Um, though I think that, you know, again, I think that I, I want to equate this to like Neapolitan ice cream, but that's only three flavors. And I guess according to Steve, you just get rid of Kick the Can, you'd have the three flavors. It'd be like, oh, look at that. Look, it's all perfect. And no one needs to talk about that fourth flavor, pistachio or whatever. Um, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey, before you guys wrap up, let me ask you guys, cause yeah. you guys spent, you know, so much time watching the seasons, you know, I, let's say this was a hit, you know, what's an episode that you would have loved to have seen a director, you know, maybe, maybe you might have somebody in mind, like, you know, they're like, Oh, we got John Carpenter to do, you know, this, or, you know, um, somebody else uh, and i just stopped at that realization where i'm like uh my brain just stopped but yep. is there an episode and a director that maybe you guys would have liked to have seen something from the uh, a future it, had this been a success we'll put it that way yeah i you know i i think that i i wish the idea of time time out would have maybe been revisited for the jordan peele produce series uh i mean and there's 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 obviously elements of like uh, race and discrimination throughout the, you know, the two seasons that was produced for, for CBS uh, recently. I think this is one that could have been, man, you, you would talk about like a powder keg. You could have, you could have come out swinging and, and we've done this. And, you know, of course that I'd always be like, like Jordan Peele should direct it. Cause I feel like he should direct everything. But I think that's something, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, like what was the one that we saw of season five, like night call, um, yeah, Night Call, great. Night Call be a good one to redo. Um, that one's pretty good on its own, though. But like, you know, get like, you know, now that we're in this, and I don't like using this term because it's bullshit. But like this whole like you know elevated horror like thing where people are like, if it's a twenty four, it has to be super serious. Um, you could have some of the more quiet horror directors come in and do something like Night Call, 
And that'd be really, really neat. You know, like you could do something like that. Um, there's plenty of gold in them hills if they want to go back and mine it. Um, you know, like even something like Elegy from season one. My God, I would love to see someone take another crack at that, especially now that we have the technology to actually um, do effective free fra freeze framing. Um, like there's some wonderful stories there. And that, and, and Terry, like, do you have some suggestions? Uh, I think that, you know, if we got something like while he was still alive, maybe Rest Craven could have done uh, a really good adaptation of Living Doll or something like that. Well, I think he also directs the first episode of the 80s series. So we're going to yeah. get to him. So there we go. Yeah. And John Carpenter could have definitely done some really good spun, like spinning of certain stories. I mean, he may as well have done You Drive because he did Christine. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like. When you're talking about the original series, I mean, they, it's left such an impression on so many creators nowadays that I think if they took, if they did this again, if they were finally able to have gotten the sequels off the ground, we could have seen like the same kind of caliber. It would have been great if like Spielberg would have oversaw, cause that was what like, that, that's kind of going to where you're talking about Steve. So had this been more of a success, I mean, it did make its money back and then some, so it wasn't a box office failure. It just underperformed. I guess the studio is considered a failure, but I don't know if your budget's 10 million and you come back 42, um, Someone has to be happy there, I would think, right? So there was plans to make more theatrical sequels doing the same thing or bringing in other creators. And if you would have had Spielberg like, and overseeing it, like imagine who other, other people he could have brought in then. And then maybe they could have explored a little bit more and come up with some more original material. Because I think you would have had the footing of like, oh, we trust them. We can do this. Uh, so what actually happened was that that didn't go forward, but CBS saw that this did well enough and there was enough like, you know, buzz about it that this actually greenlit the 80 series. So, you know, one, one begets the other. So there, there, I guess there is a positive that come out of this, but, um, but Steve, was there anything that like, I know you've seen a fair amount of the twilight zone. Is there anything that comes to mind? Casey at the bat. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. The mighty Casey, the mighty Casey. Which, is it? Yeah, the mighty Casey. <laughs> no, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I keep thinking of the opportunities that Spielberg missed. And, and um, I always want to call this episode a most unusual camera. Is that the correct title? Yes, that is. Yeah. I feel like that would have been a nice, like, comical beat that could have been in the middle of this movie. Um, just think of that idea in Spielberg's hands. Oh yeah. That would have been fun. The idea of photography and these characters seeing premonitions of their death before they fall out of a window. Um, <laughs> the but, very same window over and over and over yeah. again. Yes. Yeah. But I, I just, I can't help but think of like, Oh, that would have been a nice, you know, cause you know, when you do an anthology, you do want to have different flavors and you do want to have different tones and, and, you know, different beats within the story. So I, I keep thinking of, what I would have liked. And and you can obviously make the argument that you're like, well, okay, Spielberg's segment is the only breath of, of fresh air in the sense of like it being not a downer in the sense of it being, Oh, twilight is scary. Ooh. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of another episode. Um, what's the terrible episode with the, the car that uh, makes people tell the truth. Uh, there's a car salesman. Yeah, the who, whole like, truth. Every time, yeah, the whole truth. That's a bad episode. You're right. Yeah, the, the whole. And I, I'm sorry that I keep going to like the terrible ones, but um, you know, I, I think that maybe something along those lines, like done with like crazy, you know, 
over the top uh, just jokes in wits, you know, uh, that could have been something fun. Um, yeah, you could actually brought somebody in that like that that, that was a Sterling script, and I know he 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 is a very funny man, but that doesn't always equate to his writing. So you could have actually picked the right people to handle something like that. I agree. Like there's a there like I'm never going to be upset at somebody taking a crack at something again because you know nothing sacred. I have my favorites. There's things I absolutely love but they're still there and I will love them. And just because something else exists doesn't mean that I'm not going to love the thing that I love already. So yeah, take swings, you know? Um, and that's probably maybe when you were talking about like, um, are you, you, do you think people were going to be like, Oh, well, I know the twilight zone coming into this or would they have been upset if it's like, well, none of these were the ones I saw on TV, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I I do wonder, you know, if if that was an impact or not. And, um, you know, I I can't think of another. I mean, obviously, there are things like the Brady Bunch movie that that, you know, uh, is a parody and then takes storylines from the show. But I can't think of another adaptation from television to a theatrical that is like, here's a new presentation of the stories that you've already seen. And I was trying to impress this upon my wife that like, as I get older, time seems, you know, so much more small to me. And, and, you know, you look at the original series and the time that this movie comes out, there's only 20 years, you know, uh, which, you know, at the time that this would have come out would have seemed ancient to me. Like that would have felt like, Oh, 20 years is nothing. But think of a show that would have come out in 2001 that they did a movie of now. You'd be like, what? They're doing a movie of that now and they're retelling famous episodes from it. Like you would be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, you would, you'd be suspect of it. So I don't know. I, I don't really have a theory, uh, a theory. I don't really have a, a, a point to this. It's just things that struck me as odd upon my rewatch. And no, I was I think like, that's oh. a, I think it's a valid question. Uh, and I think that, yeah, like maybe um, there was even, even before the most recent um, CBS produced uh, the, the appeal stuff, there was talks a couple years before that DiCaprio was trying to get a, a, um, a feature uh, movie made of the twilight zone. So there's, you know, it, this is something that it, it's, it's a known commodity. Now they're going to come back to it again. Right. And it's it, it, this, this name, this idea is now permanently like burned into pop culture. So yeah, there's plenty of opportunities. And, um, and this movie kind of sparked, um, reinterest and we ended up getting three more seasons of the TV show. So there you go. I think that, um, you know, cool. I like this movie. It still bothers me. <laughs> and, and, I, I do want to educate myself more about um, the first segment. I want to find a copy of that book that um, won't cause me to sell my house to buy because I want I want to dig in. Like I, I think I think I, this is something that being a fan of the series that you know I, I think I owe it to myself to kind of try to figure out what all went on because I'm sure over time people have kind of let like um, I, I looked up on on the YouTube's um, uh, Joe Bob actually covered this on Monster Vision. The, the movie and he then someone has the bookends like the actual Joe Bob bits up on YouTube and the way he described the sequence in the first um, the first story he got the facts right and I'm not I'm not dismissing him at all because he's you know he's being a, a you know horror host and he's you know he's being Joe Bob and he has a lot of other information but the way he framed it was like um, a lot um, I don't know 
not innocent, it's not the right word, but it's like, oh, there was just an accident and this is what happened. It's like that we know that there's more to it than that, you know? But, um, so I think, I think it, I owe it to myself to try to, to learn more so I can hold this film in its proper light. I'm going to stop rambling too. Terry, save us. Yeah. So I'm glad that we covered this. It, 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 you know, what you were saying earlier, it's an, it's a nice, uh, bookend to the beginning of what this podcast was. Uh, this was what was set forth uh, when you started this, Paul, and I'm glad that we finally got to cover this. And it's, I think it's amazing. It's, it never loses that shine for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I again, like I've been watching this ever since I was a little kid, and I still get these little like tremors, like like trying to watch certain scenes. Like the Wind Walker, the Wing Walker still scares the shit out of me. So I don't know. I love yeah. it. Um, I'm glad that the we are still able to view this. I'm glad it was streaming. Uh, if people have not yeah. seen this in a while, it still stands up. Yeah, it's, it's easy to find streaming. It's like three or four bucks to rent. Yeah, you, you can know. find it on on uh, Amazon Prime. You can find it on Vudu. Yeah, and like and uh, or buy Steve, it. Yeah, Steve told us he bought it for ten bucks digitally. Like you, you know, I I do. I want to eventually find this on Blu-ray because I know it was released on Blu-ray. Um, but uh, you'd think being the Twilight Zone podcast that we'd have more physical twilight zone around us (laughs) but no you know we'll we'll fix that but anyway um before we talk about what we're doing next uh steve you need to to pimp your wares uh and the things that you do so people could check out your stuff and you need to specifically also mention your anthology because you always downplay the things that you do but here uh, sell yourself go Okay, well, first, I just want to say thank you to Terry. I feel like I was a little bit of a bull in a china shop this episode, and I mentioned that earlier, but, um, you know, I I try to always be respectful of of others that are on the show, and I feel like I kind of just came in and was like, ah, blah, 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 blah. So uh, thank you, Terry and Paul, for giving me this opportunity. I do really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for for having me on. I, I... I'm so excited to have come on here, even within the midst of, of going through the craziness of a move right now. I was happy to come on and talk about Twilight and the, the movie. So thank you for having me. Um, and then, you know, you guys can find me on Instagram and Facebook under the Saturday Night Slasher. I have a horror comic, a uh, slasher comic, oddly enough, from the title of the comic, the Saturday Night Slasher, that you can find. Um, I am, however, putting our store on vacation right now. Normally, this is where I would tell you that you could go to Etsy and uh, search our store, The Art of the Slash, to buy a copy. But uh, if you're listening to this in future, you can always go back and see if it's uh, available. But for right now, I'm going to put it the store on uh, vacation, and that's in quotes, because uh, I'm getting ready to move. So I won't be able to ship things out uh, probably within the next month, month and a half. That said, if you do want to see original artwork, uh, I actually have work that's going to be in a show that is going to be uh, opening this coming Friday, September 17th, 2021. In case you're listening to this in the far off future, like, you know, 2055. Um, but they will know uh, they will know the name Steve King and uh, Sarah Slasher <laughs> at that point because you'll have your mega empire based upon all your books that you made. Yes. So eleven two, which is in Cleveland, eleven two gallery is hosting a show called uh, Spooky Boobies, and I uh, I went. I it, the premise of the show is it could be nudity, it could be horror based, it could be both, but you could choose. I went. Oddly enough, uh, against a my lot of nudity, a sex. lot of nudity. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I went against my basis, basic instincts, instincts, and uh, 
I uh, did some Halloween pieces. So I did a, a, a ink drawing of the shape uh, from Halloween. I did a. He, he won't tell drawing. you what the shape is, though. He's the drawing of the shape. Correct. He won't tell you what shape he drew. You have to find that out uh, by going to the show. <laughs> Uh, I did the uh, uh, pumpkin head from uh, Halloween three season of the witch. And I did the Dracula costume from uh, trick or treat, which is one of my favorite Halloween anthologies. And I know you guys haven't talked about that on this show, um, but uh, we talked about an invasion. We didn't did. We? Yeah. We did. Yeah. So um, I highly recommend that, that anthology movie. Uh, if you're looking for something to watch this Halloween, but, uh, I did three Halloween specific pieces for the show. Uh, they're ink drawings. You can find them right now. Uh, opening reception is this se- this Friday, September, uh, 17th, um, 11, two gallery in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, so the people now- want to see the actual artwork as well. If they're not Cleveland specific, you do have that artwork up on your science slasher, uh, Facebook page, right? I, that is correct. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I only talk to people who are in Cleveland apparently, but no, <laughs> you are correct. I, I, I did post that artwork, uh, on, uh, both the Instagram and Facebook. And I, I should mention too, that those pieces are in nice frames with, uh, you know, mats on them. So nice. they're, uh, you're just seeing the raw drawings on the scans of the artwork that I did. Cool. No. Uh, so yeah, everybody go, go see Steve stuff. Uh, and then once the store comes back up, go buy his things. He also has an anthology book. He didn't mention cause you know, why would you mention that? Cause it's the anthology show that we're on here, but you can go buy that one as well. It's, um, was it be beyond sunset is the name of the book, right? That is correct. I always want to say, I always want to say just after sunset, because that's the name of an anthology book from another Stephen King. And I get this flipped in my head all the time. I apologize. Yeah. I I didn't even come up with that title. My uh, partner, Ryan Cassandy came up with that title, but, uh, I always think of the, uh, the movies by Richard Linklater, the the sunset trilogy. So yeah, you you should name the next two anthologies. Like, the exact same things as like, you know, was it like, was it just, was it before sunset after sunset, (laughs) whatever, just name them the same as the movies and really confuse everybody. Um, but yeah, Steve, thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I just, just, yeah, cause you, you do writing and you do short stories and you do all this stuff and we love talking to you. Uh, if you guys want to hear us over invasion where, you know, if you want to hear this kind of conversation, but go on for another hour, typically each week, um, yeah, check us out there, uh, at evasion of the podcast. Uh, we're having fun. We're going to be talking about the James Wan film malignant, um, this week, and we'll see how we feel about it. That's, that's where I'll say that. So, uh, yeah. Um, and for we, so Terry, um, how can people find us actually, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. You say your stuff. I'll say my stuff and then we'll get out of here. It's been a long night. Okay. So yeah, you can find us on uh, social media. Uh, we are on Instagram, uh, we're, uh, strange highways podcast on Instagram and we are on Facebook too. So you can come over there, check us out, talk to us, communicate, make recommendations for what we need to watch and cover on the show. Uh, That would be greatly appreciated. And then uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, rate and review us. Uh, We'd greatly appreciate that because it builds an algorithm where other people can maybe find out about us and uh, join in on the fun. Yes. Yes. So next thing we're getting into. So uh, we stated previously after doing our season five wrap up and then we were going to do Twilight Zone the movie. 
Uh, the rest of the year, so the rest of 2021, we're going to um, we're going to st- steer away from the Twilight Zone because I know we are a Twilight Zone podcast and we have watched it in sequence uh, and we will continue doing so. Uh, with the 80 series starting in 2022. Um, that will be exciting, but we're going to get into some other things for a bit. So what we're doing next week is we had asked for uh, you know, listeners to give us suggestions of what we should cover. And um, we were given the wonderful suggestion uh, from Carol, who, who supports the show, that we should talk about uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, which is from I had 1957. That, 1957, which is um, based upon a Richard Matheson novel. So there we go. There, that's going to be our our pivot. We're going to go from some Matheson to some Matheson. I have never seen this movie. I know that's a that's a sin, but I've not. Terry seen it. He digs it. Uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about Terror in Tiny Town. I mean, sorry, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, next week, that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, in the meantime, uh, have a good week. Have a safe week. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, just make sure you eat your peanut butter burgers and your jelly dogs. That's what I got. Beware the wing of the plane. Darling, do you remember where supper is? You know where it is. I do. In the oven, isn't it, Mother? (gasps) Oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) How silly of me. (laughs) She never knows. (laughs) I'll help you find it, Mother.